0: Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy.
1: Hello friends, and welcome to this very special eighth episode of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. As always, I am Nick, and I am joined by my co-host Dylan. Hi, Dylan.
2: Hello, Nick.
1: And, folks, this episode was just too much for two Twin Peaks fans to handle, so we had to call in not one, but two reinforcements. We had to call in our good friends, Sean and Josh. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. (laughs) Hello. And, uh... We all know each other from video games Twitter actually, and Twin Peaks just sort of became a thing that uh, spread like wildfire amongst our, our little uh, our little corner of, of Twitter. Um, and you guys are both like pretty uh, relatively new to the Twin Peaks fandom.
3: Uh yes. yeah yeah well I mean for, <laughs> from my own personal perspective not just Twin Peaks but Lynch as a sort of a collective work of art I've only got into Lynch like the past few months so
1: right Josh yeah you uh you had quite a uh, crash course in Lynch if I remember correctly right like you, you knocked <laughs> out a whole bunch of his movies in a day
3: yeah that I'm the kind of person where if if I get obsessed with something or a particular director or a series of films or just anything like that I will absolutely hammer it. Um, in any spare moment I get and it it happened to be I think it was a public holiday for us in the UK and uh, I was a little bit bored and I thought I don't really want to play anything so I was looking through all my DVDs and thought do you know what I actually I haven't made a start on the the David Lynch sort of DVD collection that I bought so I thought yeah that sounds like a good time to make a start on it and then I watched one and then I kind of really got into the groove so I ended up watching was it? I watched Mulholland Drive Blue Velvet and Lost Highway back to back to back in the same day, dang, uh, just yeah. Which was <laughs> that was uh, very much a sort of trial by fire in terms of Lynch, but I, just, I could not get enough because I had the prior to that the only thing of his I'd actually seen was June, which A I think he'd probably personally rather forget that he did anyway, mm-hmm. and B was when I was a kid and it just happened to be on TV, so I couldn't really remember it and definitely did not understand it um, but other than that I had not been exposed to his work except from perhaps you know the odd music video that I just didn't realise was him um, so yeah it was just very much a a kind of I don't know I just got I got it really got his hooks into me as soon as I made a start and then from there I just watched all of his films aside from Firewalk with me because I thought well that's you know that's got to have its own place within having an actual sort of Twin Peaks proper session so I left that one out until such a time where it was appropriate to watch it and then once I got all these films out the way I just made a start on Twin Peaks and basically just put a call out on Twitter saying you know I'm gonna make a start on Twin Peaks if anyone wants a kind of spoidery group chat and that's that's how we all got talking about it really and hence I'm guessing hence what this very show came out of. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all had a, a pretty fun little group DM going there for a while while uh, yeah. while Josh was getting through the show, and we really uh, we we did some pretty pretty serious nerding out. Uh, and that was that was so Twin Peaks was actually like the last Lynch thing that you that you watched, right? Like you would watch uh, all yeah. his movies.
3: Yeah, yeah. The only one of his movies I haven't seen is uh, Straight Story.
1: Ah, oh boy, Straight Story. It's totally different, but it's it's really, really, really good. I highly mm. recommend watching it. It's, oh, it's yeah. a great film.
3: Yeah, yeah, I want to watch it anyway. Just anything that's got his name attached to it now. is just, uh, He's kind of like Tarantino. And Anything that he is attached to in any shape or form, I'm just willing to, to give a go.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Straight Story so. is, is definitely worth your time. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, Sean, uh, you're also pretty new to, to Twin yes. Peaks. Uh, do you want to just give everybody a, an intro on who you are and uh, your Twin Peaks slash David Lynch journey?
4: Sure. Uh, so I uh, I started watching Twin Peaks at all. So I guess the start is Twin Peaks is the beginning and end of what I watched of David Lynch. So I have a uh, wholly just Twin Peaks perspective of David Lynch's work, mm. and i um, I started watching the show the night The Return ended. That's right. Um, I saw a bunch of buzz, and I had been uh, actually, uh, uh, you and you and Dylan, uh, uh, talking, you know, week by week, sort of sort of gushing about each episode. And I just I couldn't handle it anymore. I'd been recommended it for years, <laughs> and I finally decided to give it a go that night. And uh, I made it through the series pretty quick after that there wasn't much slowing down the only time i took a break was um in season two for a little while which um is understandable i think um <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah. but as soon as i hit fire walk with me there was there was no there was no turning back it was just straight straight pushing through until the end so uh yeah so that that's that is my experience i've i've gone back and uh rewatched the first season again and uh parts of the return um so i really uh this this uh was actually only my second time this is my revisit for episode eight Mm. so uh so uh yeah so that that's sort of my my perspective on things
1: man you you, you've got a lot of pretty amazing viewing ahead of you uh in terms of, terms of david
4: lynch Oh yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, the the hard part for me is is time and also if I'm watching something it tends to be with my wife and she she's pretty good but she doesn't like things that are like sort of existential.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And um she could hardly bear being in the same room during this episode was playing. <laughs> she she during during the uh during the whole zooming through the explosions, she asked she uh, and I have the quote here she said why don't you just watch a screensaver?
1: Oh no! So, <laughs>
4: so, so it's it's hard for me to uh, find find a little time for that. And uh, as a result, it's pretty interesting how I actually watch this show. Sometimes, sometimes it was actually like at work on the side. And like uh, this episode in particular, I actually I actually was working from home that day, and I just decided in the middle. It was a Wednesday afternoon, and I uh, closed all the shades, turned all the lights off. And episode eight was actually one that I had on a big screen, streaming it, of course, um, at the time. And uh, th- that was that was one where I really pulled out the stops for, because I'd sort of been tipped off that it was kind of a big one. And uh, it was good, but watching it uh, yesterday for the first time on the Blu-ray was a much better experience. Mm.
1: Yeah, the so. Blu-ray, um, <laughs> you know, because I, I definitely, when I first watched the show... I watched it through Showtime's streaming service. Yeah. And revisiting it on the, the Blu-ray, it's, like, not even comparable. Like, yeah. it's just, mm-hmm. it's so much better on the Blu-ray. Yeah, and,
4: and he plays so much with, like, I don't know the cinema term for I'm going to call it, like, frame rate drops <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That like when you you're streaming, you really f- don't know. Like, in this episode, every time that woods the the woodsman comes around it Mm. like gets weird and like clippy and like stilted looking and when i was streaming for all i knew Mm. it was my internet just lagging for a second yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's really nice to just get that clarity and know that it was an intentional choice versus a a result Mm -hmm. of how you're watching Mm -hmm. it yeah a lot of a lot of people
1: had that yeah i was gonna say a lot of people had the same issue with um the beginning of part three which if you remember is the part where cooper goes into the the purple room with nato and everything is like stop start for a good like 10 minutes Mm -hmm, i know a lot of people Mm -hmm. actually thought that their streaming service was messed up and just like stopped watching (laughs) for the time Mm -hmm. being which is kind of funny Mm um but yeah so you guys both you guys were aware going into this episode that it was going to be something pretty insane right i know that in our group DM, like, we were definitely like, oh, yeah, just wait till you get to part eight. Um, <laughs> but for those of us who were following along with the series as it aired, it's, it's really impossible to overstate just how much of a shock this was. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: It was, I mean, this episode was actually trending globally on Twitter. <laughs> like, pe- people were just... <laughs> People were just really up in arms about it, and uh, it's definitely one of those episodes of TV where you you remember exactly where you were when you saw it, and like mm. all the circumstances under which you saw it, because it is just mm. it is that overpowering of an experience. Mm. Um,
4: it, it yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, one of our one of our friends, uh, Jeremy Greer, on the. In our little our little group uh he he said something like i think it was him, he said something about how he like like had to like regulate his breathing or something during the episode because it was just such a crazy thing mm-hmm. and i have to say even like i wish i had the experience going week to week because it sounds incredible and it's it's kind of like we had the dm and luckily there i've been able to get some conversations but i it just sounds amazing but even going in with all the expectations it still blew me away like hmm. like even having it hyped up there's not many things that don't suffer a little bit from being hyped but this is just something where there's not even like a touchstone to like relate to right and hmm. not having watched any other lynch i or really experimental cinema in general i like didn't even have a you know there's there's nothing i could even compare this to that i've that i've watched previously so it, it it blew me away full force, even with the hype, and and uh, that that's a pretty impressive feat in and of itself.
1: Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, because even if you just describe the things that happen in this episode, it doesn't give you an idea of just what a powerful sensory experience it is. You know, mm. like it's just it really is something that you just you have to experience for yourself to fully appreciate.
3: Oh, know. definitely.
2: I remember when when I first. Uh, I missed this episode as it aired because I was at work, and I came home and my roommate had watched it. And I walked in, and he just he just stared <laughs> me dead in the eyes and went, "Dude," <laughs> and I was like, "What's up?" And he's like, "Just, just watch it." And I was like, "Okay," and then he went to bed, and I, I, I fired it up. I, I watched the whole thing, and like you know, like everyone was just completely in awe. And I actually like you know, I thought that since like there is so much weirdness in the middle of this episode, it can be easy to forget about the weirdness at the very beginning with Ray. (laughs) and I thought that's what he was talking about. So I was like, Oh yeah, damn. That was a pretty (laughs) creepy scene. And then, and then we, and then it's like 1945. And I was like, huh? And was just completely enamored. And I don't think I blinked. I just like stared at the screen the entire time. And then as soon as the episode ended and the credits rolled, I just started the episode over again, and I just watched the entire thing without skipping a beat. I just I needed to see what I just saw again because it was so alien, and it I like I think like you said, Sean, like there wasn't a frame of reference. There was not a, uh, and especially having only seen you know the the eight eight episodes, like watching it this time around, I gleaned a lot more information. I think, or I think I'm picked up on a little bit more. But first, the first time watching it, you get the raw. Reaction, mm. uh, like the visceral emotional reaction to the imagery and the sound, and that is what was like indescribable. Yeah, like there, there was uh, like in no other. Like, I could safely say this is my favorite episode my, of TV, my favorite like film, my favorite like really anything I've ever watched on a screen. It's probably this this hour of uh, of art right here because mm. it it just kind of I don't know. It took over. It took over my whole brain for like a week. Mm. Wow.
1: Yeah and th- yeah and this was actually a point at which Showtime decided to give everybody uh 2 weeks until the next episode so we <laughs> really had time to to marinate in this thing and I know I definitely Keith. went back and and watched it again and I'm sure a lot of people did as well and we we just we had no idea what the hell was going to come after that like you know like was every episode from here on out just going to be like this insane phantasmagorical mind fuck you know <laughs> like we just we just didn't know like where we were gonna go from here Um yeah. but yeah it, it's funny so apparently uh none of us on this podcast actually watched it live because it was the first episode of the season that I did not get to watch as it was happening <laughs> uh it actually aired on my mother's birthday so I was out hanging out with her and um you know I, I i remember opening up twitter briefly and just starting to see the tweets roll in you know like just holy fuck twin peaks what the fuck what the fuck holy shit and so i just immediately closed twitter just so that i wouldn't yeah. get spoiled and I, so i knew that something i knew that something had happened but i had no idea what i personally i thought that i thought that cooper had woken up and like murdered everybody in twin peaks or like something fucking insane like that right like mm-hmm. like that's 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 honestly what I thought happened was that Cooper woke up. So, you know, I I came home a few hours later and I I was mentally prepared for something insane, but there's I mean, there's no preparing yourself for what this episode
4: is. Yeah. Mm. Uh yeah, you know. that's for sure.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think speaking to to Sean's point about the hype is if i remember correctly i think in our group dm uh one of you i think it might have been you nick had said um that this episode was coming but none of you wanted to tell me exactly what point it was so because you said you know there is this one episode that is just you'll know the one when it hits in but we're not going to tell you when it is because then you're just you're already going to be on alert looking out for it so just you know let it happen naturally and so i did and I remember at the time I watched it, because I've only purely watched this on the Blu-ray, which, go back to that for a second, looks absolutely stunning. I mean, just yep. rewatching it, I finished rewatching watching it well, maybe about an hour before you started recording, and it just, again, blew me away. Because, I mean, it certainly helps that, you know, I've got a 4K TV and all that, so it's going to look a bit more fancy anyway. But it's just the way that it's shot and the way that certain... I don't know. Certain scenes are framed. It's just such a beautiful work of art of an episode. I mean, that goes for I suppose the entire season. Really, it is just such a masterpiece on how to actually make a TV show to the point where you you're just in awe about the fact that it's a fucking TV show. You think, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. that is you would have just imagined this kind of thing as being a film, and so the all the hype and whatnot is kind of. Yet yeah, there is no point of reference, but the only way if I had to like if I had a gun to my head and I had to describe it to somebody as say there's a bit of sort of weird creepiness toward in the first fifteen minutes, but then the final forty five minutes is essentially if you take the premise of the final part of 2001 the space odyssey and then just kind of stretch it out for 45 minutes that's kind of what it's like for me that's the the main point that i took out of it after watching it for the first time it just kind of made me think that was kind of like if you take the ending of 2001 as being this kind of this drug trip that goes on for seemingly just five seconds but the actual reality of how much time you spent In that trip was about forty-five minutes. It just Mm -hmm. this is how you you break it down. That's how I I took it, and it just completely blew my mind.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a it really is a a, an episode of TV that just alters your your mind state to such a profound degree. Like I Mm -hmm. revisited it last night, and after it was over, and you know I just I was determined to just pay it my full attention. And I I just didn't... I never... I don't know what to do with myself after something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's so hard to just, like, sort of go about your day normally after that. Yeah. Yeah. I...
4: I, uh, I,
2: I yeah. Yeah. Go ahead,
4: Sean. Oh, yeah. I I, I agree. Uh, and <laughs> this is kind of I, I, I finished watching the episode. And for a little context... So, my wife is in the room, but also I'm holding my uh, three-month-old during this episode, mm. and I was, like, not sure if I should let her watch any of it or not, just because, <laughs> like, I just was, like, because, like, you said, I'm, like, this could impact her whole life. If this is, like, sitting in her subconscious, like, this is, like, a bug going into her little mouth, and I don't want uh. any of it. So, like, oh, no. I... I had the same thing, so I was like had this tension after, and then as soon as it ended, my wife immediately said, "Turn on Friends," because she's been rewatching Friends. And having the stupid <laughs> Friends thing pop up after this was just like, I, I told her I was like, I feel like I have a tone concussion cause I like <laughs> I couldn't like the fact that like Friends was playing. It felt like I was like sitting outside myself, watching myself do normal things, mm-hmm. but I couldn't like. Yeah, the episode just puts your mind in a weird place, and to sort of be forced to like. Re enter like this, like sort of you know, like mundane sitcom realm after this was just like it was wild. That's crazy, (laughs) yeah.
3: No, I I completely understand that because I remember when I watched it, it was during a time where I was working a late shift, so I had time in the morning to watch it. And um, I remember thinking, you know, it was just standard days, part of my routine. I did everything I, I had to do, I had a few spare hours, so I'm gonna sit down and actually you know, carry on watching this. And I remember thinking, yeah, it's just a regular day. I'm going to go to work, which is something that I have to do in order to pay for the house that I, I own and whatnot. And I remember finishing watching that episode and thinking, do you know what? I feel pretty insignificant now. <laughs> so, which which is quite a strange feeling. I've never actually got that from an episode of a TV show to just finish the seeing the end credits of the episode roll and thinking, I really am just a speck of dust in in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. It really
1: is very funny to imagine, you know, your average Showtime subscriber, you know, who watches like Ray Donovan (laughs) or or Billions or something like that, just sort of like tuning in the middle of this and just hearing, you know, Penderecki's score just on full blast and Mm -hmm. watching this like dirty, dirty hobo, you know, squeeze the life out of a guy and stuff like that. It's just, it's (laughs) so, it's so amusing to me to imagine somebody just stumbling upon this and the fact that it aired on tv like on television yeah is just uh something <laughs> that i don't i don't know if we'll ever i don't know if we'll yeah. ever see anything like that again honestly
0: mm. yeah
2: <laughs> i remember when people were very the, the ones who were upset about this episode uh those who did not enjoy it the like most common rebuttal was always like yeah even if you hate it you should if you're a fan of art you should be very like pleased that something something like this of this ilk is just, it's on tv like you know you don't mm-hmm. have to go to some weird art house like back alley place to see this like no this is on tv yeah. and and it's uh someone's vision like unadulterated and that that in and of itself i think is valuable regardless of if yeah you love mm-hmm. or hate the episode
1: just huge respect to uh the executives at showtime for just allowing this to air on tv like i can only imagine what they must have thought when this episode came across their desk, but uh, you know, big big shout out to them because, uh, you know, they definitely, they created a moment.
3: So, mm, definitely.
1: Yep, alright, so, yeah, I think we, we've talked generally about this episode, and uh, you know, I think, I think it's probably safe to say that despite all of the incredible stuff in this season, this is the one that is gonna end up being the legacy of the show really like in the minds (laughs) of most people like 20 30 years from now this is like the standout moment from Mm. this this season
3: and probably Um, the most divisive episode i i'd wager yeah yeah it's
1: definitely it's definitely like you're in or you're out yeah because i think
3: people who who don't like lynch because of how abstract he can be um I think the reason why they're they're turned off by his films probably didn't get that much out of this episode because this episode is very much in line with the kind of films that he likes to create as well. So I imagine that a lot of those people were kind of put off. Um, but I don't know. I mean, so I don't haven't spoken to that many people about it. So I I can't you know sort of give a general consensus. But I'd imagine it's kind of it's very much a marmite episode. You either love or you hate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's I definitely. Think... Sorry, Sean, oh, go right. ahead. No, it was me. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, sorry, it's very confusing. We've we never had four people on here before, so we're <laughs> we're, we're, try, we're trying we're trying to juggle everything here.
2: It was hard enough the chomp chain where I could see everybody. <laughs>
1: it was, it was just voices. Right, right, right.
4: <laughs> Floating heads.
1: All right. Well, uh, without further ado, let's dive into what actually happens in this episode. Uh, so, yeah, let's get into it. Part eight. Got a light.
0: <laughs> <laughs> got a light. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full, and descend. The horse is the white of the ice. and dark. <laughs>
1: Dylan, you mentioned earlier that uh, the first part of this episode is uh, actually pretty weird in its own right, sure. and uh, <laughs> I think I think that's worth mentioning, because we, we definitely don't want to sleep on some of the stuff that happens within the first 10 or 15 minutes here, uh, and we open with Ray and Mr. C, fresh out of jail, driving away, and right off the bat, we get yet another instance of something that Dylan and I have talked about a lot this season, which is just (laughs) Mr. C's just absolutely fucking weird Mm. relationship with technology. (laughs) This is a weird
4: one. This is real, kind of... I don't don't know.
1: (laughs) This is extremely strange. This is way up there. So, he has a... I guess it's a cell phone. And he (laughs) uses it to deduce that there are three tracking devices on their car
4: (laughs) shown very obviously Mm -hmm.
1: yes yeah the displays (laughs) in this season are very good and the (laughs) the one that he sees here like the the display that represents the different tracking devices is really weird so it's like on one horizontal row it's like the letter c and then below that it's the word fire and then below that it's like a it's like an uppercase D and then like a circle with a red dot in the middle of it, and then an x and apparently that to Mr. C means that there are tracking devices
3: <laughs> out. because of course, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. obviously yeah. who couldn't who couldn't look at that it, and and deduce yeah. that that's what's happening
4: it's such a weird way to represent it i was I was thinking about this, and I was like so. If Mr. C just says there's there's three tracking devices on this car, and then he just puts something into his phone, arguably that's more mysterious and cooler. But Lynch chooses to make it the dorkiest looking like, <laughs> thing he possibly could, mm-hmm. and I I kind of love it, and kind of was almost going to call it stupid because like it is it's like dumb, but I kind of love it at yes. the same time because mm-hmm. it's just why would you? do it that way oh yeah <laughs> like yeah it's just it's just kind of amazing that for such a mysterious show where he's like especially in this episode so abstract that he really like just the yeah the graphic design like you're saying it's like it's so like clear but it doesn't mean anything yeah <laughs> it's, like, it just, totally it's just a weird place yeah yeah it's i yeah it's a uh, definitely an interesting choice <laughs>
1: so yeah and so the way that he deals with this is to have ray pull up behind a big truck and enter in the license plate number of the truck into his phone and i guess that that transfers i guess the signal from the tracking devices onto the truck and uh <laughs> he's just like well that should do it and he just tosses his phone <laughs> out the window mm-hmm.
2: which is the best part by the <laughs> of that whole sequence yeah everything yeah. that he <laughs> because... does is so like meticulous tick 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 he's pushing on his phone he's typing in the coordinates alright we're good and just chucks it out the fucking window I loved it
3: yeah yeah. Well, which is something that we've probably all wanted to do at some point every day oh yes I expect yeah. at some yes. Point, every <laughs> day yes absolutely yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Also, I find it funny that we're kind of, or at least to me, we're supposed to um, believe that this is you know kind of as present day as you can get, but that is an old ass version of iOS he's got on that phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I truthfully didn't even recognize it as like any iOS whatsoever. It just seemed made up to me. I don't even, is it like a, an actual iOS?
3: It certainly looked like it. It looked like um, sort of how it used to look back in the, the 3G days, the... And stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, wow.
1: yeah. I don't. Yeah, I have no answers. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Basically, we just get a bit of dialogue here where Mister C, um, as he has been all season to this point, he's wanting these coordinates from Ray. Um, and Ray, you know, he he says that, you know, he has those coordinates, but they're worth a lot. And he definitely wants some sort of payment from Mister C, and Mister C just kind of looks at him like, "Yeah, fucking right." Mm. Like he just gives him this look, like, "Yeah, like you think I can't get them from you if I really mm-hmm. want them?" You know, mm. like that was that was the the vibe that that I got from Mister C here.
3: Mm. Um, and the the conviction in his stare as well. I mean, Karl oh, yeah. McLaughlin is absolutely <laughs> just knocking out of the park. Is it? it, It's it's almost like it's not even him. It's so strange, just because you see him as Cooper and then you see him as Dougie and then you see him as Mister C. And it's just it is the way that he's able to convey three essentially three separate characters. But it's just you absolutely have full faith in him doing that because he just Mm -hmm. completely nails it. He's just such a joy to watch in anything he does. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he Kyle McLaughlin just absolutely crushed it this season. I think mm-hmm. I think even people who had reservations about this season would have to acknowledge that that his work was really incredible. Mm-hmm. Um And uh so okay. <laughs> so we get a couple of sort of uh very long lost highway esque shots oh, yeah. here of oh, yeah the road the winding road at night the headlights it's very much reminiscent of our introduction to mr c in the first Mm -hmm. episode Mm -hmm. where we hear the the muddy magnolia song playing it's it's very much like that and uh you know that's just the classic lynchian thing that he's done in pretty much all of his work i would say since lost highway (laughs) Mm. Um, I believe Mulholland Drive opens with that 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 same shot of mm-hmm. the like the first person perspective of of the headlights going down the road. It's just it's just an image that that he really enjoys. I
2: drive a lot mm-hmm. and I drive a lot at night, um, and I not once do I uh, fail to think of those shots as I'm driving on these like like back roads at night. Just I don't know. There there is <laughs> like I don't really know why he loves that shot so much, but I love that shot in the same way like it just it i don't know it captures mm-hmm. some sort of some i don't know some feeling that that i uh i like
1: yeah it's um. just something about this idea of journeying into the darkness you know mm-hmm. like i did i think there's something about that that appeals to him yeah
3: there, there's something it's got quite a sort of a noirish feel to it as well like you you are directly driving into the abyss right yeah
1: yeah absolutely So Ray has to take a leak, or so he says. So they pull over, and uh, if you'll recall from the previous episode, Mr. C had requested from the warden that the warden leave a gun in the glove compartment. Ray apparently caught wise to this and, you know, swapped it with a gun that was not loaded. And so uh, they have a little confrontation here where Mr. C exits the car Ray turns around and says tricked ya fucker and then (laughs) shoots him Uh, yeah and then that's when shit starts getting real Yeah, because (laughs) out of the the darkness appear the woodsman who to this point in the series we have seen just little tiny glimpses of we see them we see one of them in the jail cell next to Bill Hastings. And I think the second episode, we see another one at the morgue Mm -hmm. sort of stalking the, the people who are looking over major Briggs's body. Mm -hmm. And here we see a whole bunch of them. And this sequence, I I mean, I, I think this is one of the, just the creepiest, most effective things in the entire show. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah it is really good. I think it's like there's something about the strobe effect and like the flicker. But the my favorite part about all of it is like the the shots of Ray like kind of curled up with the <laughs> woodsman mm-hmm. tearing away at Mister C, uh, like mm. superimposed over that image, and the way mm-hmm. it lingers on that. It to me it feels like you know a lot of the times like watching film and watching TV shows you know you can get lost in the it's just displaying something that's happening maybe artfully whereas like when you look at a painting a painting can be more abstract and can have uh inferred meanings and stuff like that so like that shot of of of, like ray just sort of like incomplete uh, like he's he's shocked he can't really move he can't even run away yet he's just completely in awe at what he's seeing and then you're seeing what he's seeing plastered over him it's just sort of this like long moment of this guy who is like as shocked as we are at what is happening and uh it it it, i don't know that that thing particularly struck me because i was just like kind of similarly shocked in the same way when it was first happening just kind of staring motionless at the screen like holy shit what is happening and Mm. what does it mean and by the Mm. way it looks really sick i like strobe
3: effects uh (laughs) (laughs) it's really good yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that this scene here is notable, you know, obviously for a few reasons. But one thing that I really thought about this time around was the fact that, you know, normally when Lynch is presenting something really extreme and abstract and surreal, he tends to do so um, in conjunction with some really abrasive sound work. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's always a lot of... There'll be, like, a lot of, like, high-pitched scraping or, or buzzing or something like that. And he really takes the opposite approach this time mm. and just sort of slows everything down and reduces it to this, like, this crawling score, which is Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata slowed down to about a quarter speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I did and, not know that. Yeah, it is. It's actually... I. I heard um somebody sped it up and not only is it moonlight sonata it's moonlight sonata with monkey screams mixed into it oh, like no. if you yeah oh, if you speed wow. it up there's like there's like monkeys wailing <laughs> it's really insane um
2: that is so sick
1: yeah and so there's that and then there's just ray's muffled screams where no, he's just sort of like like it's all very mm-hmm. low pitched mm-hmm. It's a, yeah. it's like um it's a very intense but very subdued moment in a way that is yeah. um, kind of uncharacteristic of Lynch. I I, th- I think it's really interesting.
4: Mm. Yeah. I love the muffled moan. That the moans like when the like everything he does to show like how the woodsmen are just affecting the world around them when they appear like is amazing. Like later there'll be more muffled moans mm-hmm. f- that the Woodsman caused. And every time mm-hmm. it happens, like that's like kind of the thing is like like a like uh you're saying about the uh shot of Ray and just like within like moaning and like just that slow, like weird, ponderous music of the Moonlight Sonata, it feels just like so like claustrophobic. Like mm-hmm. it's a weird thing. Like you're saying like it's like a uh, it's the opposite but it has a similar effect where I feel like completely enshrouded by it mm-hmm. like you know like it's like suffocating me versus like like the, the normal like we'll see with like the really crazy imagery when we get to uh you know Pendeki's music with the threnody of the victims of Hiroshima where it's like also feels very claustrophobic in mm-hmm. that you feel surrounded but this one just feels yeah just like the feeling like yeah it's, it's weird because you're seeing Rey and he feels like so trapped even though he's in a big field like you just are like i like i really felt for ray in the scene like you're saying he's kind of like weirdly like an emotional core at that moment where i'm like i feel bad for the guy he's kind of a dick but he, like mm-hmm. he pulled one over and he was not expecting this crazy shit to happen mm-hmm. i you know i figured he thought he was gonna drive away smiling but like you just feel kind of bad for him and for yourself kind of for like what's happening around you
1: yeah definitely and it's it's funny when he drives away, like he's on the phone with uh, with Philip Jeffries mm-hmm. or at, at least somebody who he believes to be Philip Jeffries. And he's like <laughs> and he's trying to explain what happened. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I think I killed him. But uh, he had some <laughs> yeah. he had some kind of help. Like mm-hmm. like he just doesn't he doesn't he doesn't really know how to describe it. Um, yeah.
2: Some kind of help is the funniest way to describe what happened (laughs) (laughs) he got some kind of help like triple a showed up like
4: (laughs) i I think he says he has he had something inside him which is that weird orby thing and yeah with with the bob face yeah
1: yeah uh, with bob and i i think that that's actually a good um a good segue to talk about something that i find very confusing which is the relationship between the woodsman and mr c and bob because mm-hmm. it like this scene in a vacuum, if you just looked at what happens in this scene, I like I read it as Mr C died and the woodsmen show up to revive him, thus keeping Bob inside Mr C as a host. Mm, like that that's was how I read it too. That was what I saw when I saw this scene. However, it's very confusing because uh near the end of the season in part seventeen, where we get that scene at the sheriff's station, the exact opposite happens. Where Lucy shoots Mr. C, then all the woodsmen show up, and they do the whole ritual where they're they're rubbing blood on his face and his chest Mm. and whatnot. Then they back off. Bob emerges from Mr. C, and Mr. C doesn't revive. So like i'm very confused about what the purpose and function is of the woodsman with regards to to mr c and bob and i've done a lot of digging about it and i can't really come to an entirely satisfactory explanation about it
2: i mean i don't think it's we're going to get anything that's definitive as far as like the nature of the relationships between all of these figures but from what we're shown uh Bob and the woodsman s- seem to come from the same source uh which is the experiment and so for whatever reason uh the experiment or the woodsman I don't know if they have separate or um, or this or similar uh like goals or ends or even if they have goals or ends at all, but it seemed like in at in part eight that you know, his, Mr. C's role was not played yet. It was not done. And so he was revived. And then perhaps that's the function of the woodsman to. It's obviously to show up and uh, do the bidding of the experiment, we can assume, because that's what we see puking them into existence. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think that when we get to part 17, like I haven't got there in my rewatch yet. So. Like, I haven't gleaned as much information as I could, but I had, had imagined that there's like their function could have still been the same. It still could have been to try and like either revive Mr. C or like extract the Bob orb from it. And there were conditions that made him powerful enough to fight Freddy in his green glove. But huh. <laughs> I, I just think that the only thing that I can really pull from it is that. Uh, Bob the Woodsman and the experiment are all at least seemingly on the same side and mm. that Mr. C is like a vehicle for Bob and is useful to the experiment in so far as like whatever its plan is and we know that or at least I think we're I think we're shown in this like in the the coming sequence that there are pretty extreme like ends of the spectrum uh that have opposing plans to one another and i think that they're using like the same set pieces in their plans and it's this odd um like subversion of one another that is like keeping the like the central mythology of twin peaks going um which like i don't know we we'll, we can we'll get to all of that as, as it comes but mm. um i definitely think yeah. that the the woodsmen are working or doing the bidding of the experiment whatever that
1: is whatever that bidding may be
0: mm.
4: is um is is when that happens in 17 is is that after the Alcave ring gets put on
1: no that is before mm.
4: oh because i was gonna say maybe the ring was preventing you know yeah that from but yeah that's yeah that's interesting yeah i haven't been able to rewatch it yet but yeah i had a similar thing where they, actually the first time i watched it like not having any context i thought that they were like pouncing on him while mm-hmm. he was like weak me too yeah and but then like you said like nothing else supports them being opposed the only yeah the only thing like you were saying is like uh like maybe i can't figure it out it does seem like they're aligned and it's just yeah it's weird how there's an inconsistency and the only thing my mind goes toward is like maybe these maybe this side where they're all on the same side they're also kind of opportunistic, you know, and right. like I don't like they might just be a force of like chaos in a sense hmm. that just like you're saying like like you're saying like, like maybe at that point in seventeen, <laughs> you know, they're just like, nope, not gonna do it this time for whatever reason. You know, like they're just kind of this like chaotic element that's sort of on that end, but that also doesn't feel quite right. So I'm not I'm not really sure either. The the Woodsmen in general I find very cool but one where i can't think about why they are too much because i don't i don't i don't really get their origin or their like specific purpose but they're they're cool mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah sorry I mean, josh were you gonna say something
3: i was just going to say to me it kind of seemed like uh possibly sort of a good versus evil thing going on with some weird i don't know magical force stuff because there's a shot um where the woodsmen are reviving Uh, Mr. C where they're kind of there you've got the ones that are actually sort of taking the blood and sort of smearing it all over him but then you've got I presume it's the same ones also kind of dancing around him as well so it's kind of comes across to me as being a sort of a ritual as if you know this is what they're meant to do in the event of their I don't know I suppose they're kind of their protege or something sort of being taken down but I suppose perhaps in part 17 it's possibly because the the setting that it happens it's in the actual the police station where they're sur- actually surrounded by all the good people or like the the forces of good so it's almost as if all the forces of good are just too much as a collective for the dark forces to reviving that time so i i don't know i mean yeah like you said it's Freddy. <laughs> yeah there, there, there's no there's no sort of definitive answer yeah. and I'm, I'm going to preface like the rest of this conversation by saying i've i am not going to even try and pretend that i completely understand what is is happening in this episode or you know have you know any sort of coherent thought it's purely interpretation and personal opinion yeah. because i just if i had to sit there and explain it factually to somebody I honestly don't think I could do that.
1: <laughs> oh Sorry. yeah, yeah, no, we're we're definitely not here to try to like solve what happened yeah. because yeah. you know, like like the season in general, it's yeah. you know, you never really can p- put all the pieces together in a way that makes 100% logical sense. Like mm. you're just not going to be able to do it and it, it's that way by design. So we're definitely not yeah. like Yeah we're we're not here to like well we got the four of us here we're going to get to the bottom of this damn thing <laughs> yeah know, like, yeah it's very that's much yeah.
3: that's a great episode of television but i don't know what the fuck it means yeah yeah no yeah <laughs> definitely I, I, yeah. but and it is it is fun to the sort same. of uh th- yeah.
1: it is fun to sort of put the pieces together a- oh, as yeah, much yeah. as you can because yeah. there are there are yeah. certain things that you can that you can infer based on what we see on screen mm. and yeah i guess i guess the only way that i can really make the woodsman makes sense based on what we see in this episode and in that part 17 is if they are just sort of maybe more aligned with bob and not so much mr c and maybe Mm -hmm. they're just like in that particular moment in this episode bob wants to stay in mr c whereas in part 17 maybe bob wants to go out you know like maybe bob sees like oh shit freddie and cooper are here it's time to fuck them up you know what I mean? Like, mm. uh, yeah, time
4: to play pinball. Yeah, ex-
1: <laughs> exactly. Mm. Something that's probably significant
2: about this is that we have, like, uh, we have Mr. C when he gets the phone call from who he thinks is Philip Jeffries, and it says, "I missed you in New York. Uh, you're going back in, and I will be with Bob again." Mm-hmm. That whole thing. So there's someone mm. seemingly working against Mr. C to get him to to get back with bob so we can presume that that is either mike or judy or the experiment or whatever um but it's not the blue rose task force so it's not or it's not the fireman at least we don't
1: i don't think it's the fireman yeah i so have
2: that and uh, yeah and then at the at the end of the this sequence we have ray talking to who he thinks is philip jeffries and so who knows if part of like if that person that Ray is talking to is the same person that was pretending to be Philip Jeffries or if that actually was Philip Jeffries. Because we know that the, the real Philip Jeffries is above the convenience store at the Dutchman's, the regular Dutchman's, not the flying ones, um, <laughs> which I said last time. <laughs> um, so who I don't know. But I just think that whoever it is that was I think whoever it is that was trying to. um get back with bob has something to do with the firemen and them going at bob and sort of like that whole thing seems intertwined to me uh and i think it's just the fact that the this scene ends with ray talking to philip jeffries uh like is that's for me the tie-in or what's what's pulling me in that direction
1: right yeah there's there's um yeah there's definitely evidence to suggest that Ray is working directly with Philip Jeffries. And I think you could also make an argument that he's working with an imposter of Philip Jeffries, you know, possibly the same person who we see impersonating Jeffries on the phone with Cooper or Mr. C rather in part two, but that's a whole, right. that is a, uh, that's a whole can of worms. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, we get a great shot of Mr. C just sort of bolting upwards and he's just mm-hmm. filthy and and covered in blood, like he just he he shoots up like the uh, like that Undertaker gif, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> another yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it always reminded me of that. Uh-huh. Um, and then we cut, of course, to the Nine Inch Nails, <laughs> which yeah. this is our introduction to the. Um, I guess what you'd call him, like the house announcer for the Roadhouse who shows up a couple more times. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't see him before this introducing any of the other bands. I think we only see him introducing uh, Nine Inch Nails, James Hurley, and the recording (laughs) of Sharp Dressed Man by ZZ Top. (laughs)
2: Um, And Audrey's Dance.
1: That's right. And Mm. Audrey's Dance. So very odd uh, very odd placement of this guy throughout the season <laughs> so yeah what do you guys think of this song and uh, just this performance and, and sort of how it, it functions in the episode
3: I love it I absolutely love it um, I had no idea that um, Nine Inch Nails were going to be in it and yeah it was just exquisite I've never personally seen them live sadly um, I'm st- still waiting for that f- f- to be graced with that amazing yeah, oh, I, don't, I can, I can imagine. I mean, just go on this performance. It's a fantastic performance, and I feel like mm-hmm. it's, it's a great choice of song because the, the song itself seems to kind of have a sort of a, a, bit of a trance-like momentum to it, um, in particular with Trent Reznor's vocals as well. It very much feels like you are falling down the rabbit hole, and then given what everything that happens after this particular scene, it's kind of very much setting up in your mind the I don't know like I said the sort of the trance like state of just you know completely zoning out and just I don't know it, it just really spoke to me in terms of being the perfect choice of song for everything that was coming after it um mm-hmm. but yeah I loved it I mean I've been a big fan of Nine Inch Nails since I was about 14 years old um so yeah the, and anytime that they're in anything and it's it's always good to see Trent Reznor as well uh, just because I love that man and anything that he does and I also feel like in this particular episode for some reason he really looked like he could be the Terminator just <laughs> just the way that he was dressed up and his sunglasses and everything he just really looked like he could be the Terminator but I, don't, I think that's just me um, but yeah yeah absolutely loved it
4: yeah it's, it's good uh, tone setting it feels appropriate and uh, it's yeah it's it's just a nice nice way to sort of like tie things together you know like i feel like there there needed to be something between everything that happens after and that and it was like the perfect sort of link between the two and the performance the performance is really great when he, you know he's like singing and he just like like he's like the way he's emoting feels just extremely appropriate mm-hmm. <laughs> for the episode the performance is very lively yeah. but and it just right in line with stuff and besides the Audrey's dance like this was like the time when I was first watching it where I was like I don't think this place is real (laughs) like from the very like the roadhouse like if there was ever a time when you're just like I don't know if this is actually happening in like Twin Peaks as we understand it like this Mm -hmm. was one of those times I was like it just feels almost like the roadhouse is just reflecting off of things it couldn't understand but somehow knows about in this like deep way you know
0: Mm.
2: hell yeah yeah i love the um i love how even though you you're we're in the roadhouse a lot in in uh in the return this time it's in a an odd spot within the episode and also to me it looks different it's a the stage is a lot darker than Mm -hmm. it usually is so it feels like a different space than the roadhouse like even the roadhouse as we know it Mm -hmm. So like its use in this episode has it it just does it keeps playing into the otherworldly nature of everything that we're seeing, even with the um, like the choice of calling them the nine inch nails, which I I think that plays into it because it it's not it's it's like the classic Lynchian like uncanny valley. It's Mm -hmm. like 90 90 percent what you expect and then 10 percent. Is completely off, mm. and you can't really put your finger on the, what it is. Yeah. And it's so close to normal that is the weirdest it could possibly be because it's like so it's so close yet so alien. Um, and I I love the demeanor. I, I actually had a student one time ask me uh, about stage presence and like how to how to you know like how to get outside of yourself, mm. uh, and I showed her this video. I was mm-hmm. like all right here we go, we're gonna watch something mm-hmm. uh because it is you know at the end of the day, those are people, just everyday people like all of us, um uh, just on a stage performing mm-hmm. doing a thing, and you know it, it's helped with the way it's filmed and the lighting and all of that, but the demeanor the the presence that they that they command um is i don't know there's there's something really cool about that performance where like every single person on stage. Like you you could watch, I think you you would have value in watching that sequence over and over again and just focusing on one person at a time and just watching them because everyone is doing cool shit the entire time. Um, But I I think it's placement in pretty close to the beginning of the episode uh, almost like primes you for how out of place everything else that happens afterwards really is.
1: Yeah, I I agree with what you said before Sean about this sequence here being a really effective transition between what came before and what came afterwards. It's like it's like we we kind of needed a buffer of some kind, you mm-hmm. know, um just to just to steel ourselves for the really intense sequence that's about to come here. <laughs> And, yeah, I, I love the way that the stage is set up here. It, mm. You're right. It is very different. There's mm. a really dynamic sort of light show happening here, which, um, if you know, if you've ever seen Nine Inch Nails live, it, that's very much the case for them. And mm. I just I like the fact that even here in the roadhouse, Trent Reznor is like, nah, you got to you got to step your light game up. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to just perform in the same lights as like Aura Simone or something, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah i i really like this i really like this song this song was written specifically for twin peaks there was one other song that trent apparently had written for the show that david lynch had rejected uh which trent will not reveal which song that is although i'm, I'm very very curious about it and uh so yeah, and then also just a bunch of really goofy insert shots of the crowd dancing very clearly to nothing. Uh which <laughs> I find very funny. So yeah, that's the nine inch nails. Um and from there we get into the real shit, guys. Oh here, um, we, here we go. <laughs> White sands, New Mexico, nineteen forty five, the atomic bomb tests. You see New Mexico 1945, and it's obviously very jarring. The first time you see it, you're just kind of like, uh-oh, what? 1945? What the Mm -hmm. hell? Um, And then you hear the countdown, and then you see just a, a huge white flash, and you see the mushroom cloud, and... This this moment where the music kicks in, this uh, Christoph um Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima, is still no matter no matter how many times I watch this, is just bone chilling. Mm-hmm, this moment yeah. right here, yeah. it is just mm-hmm. so unbelievably effective because mm-hmm. I it's it's so hard to articulate, but I think it's something about the fact that we're obviously witnessing something hugely destructive in the atom bomb combined with the fact that we're getting this incredibly dissonant music and it's that slow push you know it's that very very slow push that just builds the dread so effectively it's like we're just creeping ever closer to this uh to just this monument of human cruelty and destructiveness Mm -hmm. and it is just like just unforgettable. Mm.
4: Yeah, it's it's an amazing shot because, and I think maybe it may, it could be me, but um, I think he plays with this twice in this episode. Where when they first the shot opens, you don't really have any uh, scale, or at least I like, you know, this could be like two feet off the ground or a thousand feet. Like I just see like I don't know, you know, it's just like kind of uh, ambiguous to me
0: mm. for a
4: moment. And um, I I love how like this ambiguity is sort of there and then when the mushroom cloud goes off you you realize how far away it is mm-hmm. and i've never seen a mushroom cloud shot like that which is amazing too but also i like how sort of thematically it, it the way it played out for me was that that the mushroom cloud solidifies the scale of everything mm-hmm. and it's like the mushroom cloud is this monument as you're saying and it's sort of reveals everything and it's clear all of a sudden and i like how that plays into how the episode is kind of saying as you said like this monument to like human sin and human evil is like is like uh played into by having that be the thing that crystallizes the picture for you Mm -hmm. and yeah i just love that that slow push and the music it's just yeah it's such a such an amazing feeling like you said of just like this has been a very bad thing that's happened Mm -hmm and you know even if you knew nothing about mushroom clouds and atomic bombs I feel like there'd be no doubt for someone that they'd be like something really terrible has just happened
0: mm.
3: yeah and I think that the the fact that that shot is, is so long and drawn out is meant to be deliberately significant and I think this is maybe something that kind of that plays into how David Lynch feels about it in general because obviously we've got um, Gordon Cole's got a picture of you know of an atomic bomb mm going off in in his office i think if if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. um yep. yeah so it's in part seven yeah that's it um so i think it's just very much speaking to him in terms of uh, i want to say the, the the breakthrough that human beings made in the in the 20th century although breakthrough seems like you know a bit of a bit of a, a bad term for it but in terms of the 20th century was an incredibly bloody century for Human beings in general, you know, with you know the world wars and whatnot, and Vietnam and all that stuff, and so it's. I think it's kind of like um, you know, one of the biggest things that human beings did in the 20th century was we made a device that can kill millions of people almost instantaneously, Um, and that is now in today's modern society, um, sort of kind of used as a trivial threat. Um, you know you, you hear it all the time in the news and whatnot about how you know North Korea showing their the nuclear armaments and whatnot is kind of like flexing their their military muscles um and so it's kind of like a commentary on the fact that there are people in this world who are willing to to push that button and not really consider the ramifications of their actions in terms of how far along um sort of in the future that's going to affect people um and the fact that you know it was us that made that and chose to use it—it's um, clearly very significant. Um, and I think I think that that's going to kind of play with certain things that come later in this episode as well, in terms of perhaps Lynch maybe feels like the advent of the atomic bomb was kind of the most evil thing that humans did in the 20th century which is which is awful to say when you consider things like the holocaust happened as well which is you know equally just as horrific as we all know um but I feel like this is perhaps more significant for him because of you know that that mushroom cloud just as an image is so oppressive and just so it's just it's like seeing a giant tower of doom essentially you know you know that if anyone is in that area they're fucked essentially um, so I, I feel like it's just kind of making a statement in terms of this is the most evil thing that human beings have done, and you know from this moment forth, this is where the evil spews out into the world, and it's very much you know the evil that men do. Just reiterating that point again, um, and I also feel like maybe it's just me, but as you get closer to it, the way that the actual the top of the mushroom sort of glows reminds me of the way that um, the evolution of the arm as well just kind of yeah yeah so yeah yeah, so you kind of get like a a slight visual callback but you know you see you got to really pay attention to get that because you're so fixated on the fact that you know this is just a horrific event played out in such slow motion that you got to kind of it's not until perhaps a second or even maybe a third watch that you really sort of see that sub that subtext but yeah it's a very powerful image yeah i agree with you josh about how this is Probably, uh,
2: it's, it's a display of, of just pure and utter evil. Mm. And I think that in most ways, Twin Peaks is a show about duality, or at least duality is a, a central theme. Mm. And we are shown one side of, like, you know, one very extreme side of the spectrum with this image, with this very clear image um, that we're being forced to slowly meditate on. Uh, I think that's sort of like the idea of, like, for me growing up, you know, you, you you learn about nuclear weapons in like I don't know, like the the fourth grade. Like we, I don't know, the first time we learned about World War II in school, and but it was, it's it almost like it doesn't seem real. It seems like it seems like like Lex Luthor. It's like a bad guy that that I only ever read about in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the thought and the think that like you know, seventy years ago. Right. That that happened. That was dropped on two cities. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing that happened. And this is all what's going through my head as I'm, I'm you know, being forced to actually sit there and think about, a, a, you know, a mushroom cloud and an atomic bomb and the effects that it has. And I think it's no uh, it, it's not insignificant that like we do see Gordon Cole at, has this as his uh, like this little backdrop. And if we want to infer into just Lynch in general, we see uh, a mushroom cloud as far back as a razorhead mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in what's the face of the apartment. Mm-hmm. So when I saw New Mexico in 1945, the first thing I thought was just like this. This is probably about as good as we're going to get as far as a in uh, origin story. To whatever it is that we're dealing with here, mm-hmm. and I, I still think that that is what we're given, and not to not to disparage the Mark Frost books in, in any way, but at least just for me, part of why I haven't been compelled to read either of them is because the like in Twin Peaks, the show, like this is this sequence we're about to get is that's this is the type of uh like background that I want i i would lo- I, I would love the background of this of the the story to be even more opaque than the story itself so that it delivers some i think you get some answers from this but it delivers far far more questions and the like it it all begins with this very very slow crawl into uh the mushroom cloud and then like you mentioned Josh at a certain point I think it's very distinct that it looks just like the evolution of the arm mm. <laughs> um, you, at least from the angle that, that you're zooming in on mm-hmm. and eventually we just zoom completely into the white space mm-hmm. of this cloud so that it has completely enveloped us and from there we get all the stuff that happens next but it begins with um you know with all like the the things that we see, but it just it the fact that it begins with this slow crawl and that kind of that doesn't really let up even even though we get breaks from it, we always snap back to that forward emotion as if like things are only going to keep going forward from here, so mm-hmm. this has happened, and because of that this is the this is what that yields in uh in all of the crazy insane ways that we see it play out,
1: yeah, yeah. I think just. The, the slowness of the push into it and the fact that we, we are made to to sort of meditate on the horror of this thing is, is really key. Mm, yeah. And, um, you know, Dylan, it, it's funny you bring up Mark Frost because, according to him, this whole notion of Bob being birthed from this nuclear test was his idea. And he described pitching it to Lynch in one of their writing sessions and just... Seeing Lynch close his eyes, Frost said he could just see like Lynch's imagination going crazy. Mm. Just that notion set off something in in his head, and I think it really speaks to just how valuable their collaboration is. You Mm. know, because Mm. they do tend to bring out this this stuff in each other, and it's this whole conceit is one of those things where I think if you had never seen this sequence. And you ju- you just you read it like on paper. Oh, Bob is birth from the atomic bomb. Like you could you could read that as being sort of um, obvious or or cheesy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's depicted here, and just with with Lynch's just incredible control of tone and visual mastery, it becomes. Something truly horrifying, and it mm. doesn't come yeah. off as corny or cheesy or obvious at all. Mm. And yeah. I, I just think it, it really, it really illustrates just how how valuable each of their contributions are to this whole universe here. Mm. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I
3: think that's that's even more effective speaking to to Dylan's point about if this is you know as true an origin story as we're possibly going to get. It's also particularly interesting to note that if we take Twin Peaks as as a whole, you got to bear in mind that in season two we had a character that ended up being you know the the like the handle of a draw. So you've got such weird <laughs> surreal shit like that happening, and yet if you take this as being an origin story, it's tied to such a horrific real life event that you kind of it's just it's interesting to see the surreal meet an actual reality. Of sorts, and so how he's able to to take all this this weird crazy shit that's going on you know, with all the the woodsmen sort of you know doing this ritual thing wherever it is to to mr c in the the previous sort of scene, and yet sort of completely just grounding it in this this real life event that that actually happened is is fascinating to me how he's able to just sort of go from one extreme to the the complete opposite extreme.
1: Yeah, 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 and then the the other real world tie, obviously, is the fact that, you know, this this music piece by Penderecki is literally it's it's like dedicated to the victims of Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. like it's like we're very much meant to think about mm. the real world imagery on display here. And mm. you know, Sean, you're right. Like now that I think about it, I don't think we've ever seen an atom bomb depicted in, in this way in this level Mm -hmm. of detail and you know this season got a lot of shit from people because of just how crude a lot of the effects are and i think that this sequence and i would point to the you know frog moth quote-unquote creature later Mm. as being indicative of how you know when lynch wants something to look real he can do that yeah. But I, I think it's just that most of the time he really embraces the 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 non reality of the of the effects. He's not he's not interested in convincing you that what mm. you're seeing is real mm. um until it's this particular case where he really just like renders it in like truly breathtaking detail. Like this is just mm. a visually stunning mm. recreation of the atomic bomb. Mm. Yeah.
4: You know. Yeah. And I think like just this through our discussion this sort of popped in my head like wondering why he chose to shoot it far away like that besides looking cool and yeah like you said it looks really amazing and obviously this was meant to be a very iconic shot given how much like you know resources and money and like how it seems like half their CGI budget probably went into shots like this <laughs> and and I think I think what I've arrived at when like just with our discussion about how this this episode makes you feel so small and just the themes of the show is I think what this scene does that most atomic bomb shots aren't going for is that I think this is actually cosmic horror, mm. which which I get that from it because it's an atomic bomb, which is this huge thing. And usually they're shot low, you know, from a human perspective, and it's supposed to show the power of humanity. But this one almost takes away humanity's like potency, and it kind of focuses on this shot of how it's, it's this little blip in the screen. And as you push closer, I think it's sort of showing the impact. But what I sort of get out of that too, is that like, versus like the Holocaust as a terrible thing humanity has done, the Holocaust has this visceral, extremely human and physical reaction. Whereas the themes of Twin Peaks tend to be cosmic horror in the sense that like, this is a great example of humanity trying to, to, like, ascend mm. techn- technologically mm-hmm. and, like, trying to become more than what they are and sort of showing how impotent and how kind of dumb hum- humanity is that they don't even realize what's happening. And I think part of the reason you feel so small coming out of this is even something like the atom bomb is, like, it's this dumb thing that humanity has done and and um, the consequences of it are, like so much more beyond what humanity can comprehend not only with how it's being used in the real world and what it did in eventually in hiroshima but Mm. he's sort of expanding upon that further saying like it like birthed this like avatar of evil Mm. and it's not out of humanity's base nature it's about our attempt to become more than we are and failing miserably at trying to do that Mm. Mm -hmm. and just like so I, i think that ties in really nicely with like has it like a cosmic horror theme and like judy and like how that stuff sort of works and yeah it's just i just thought of it during this discussion and how that's kind of a an interesting sort of tie-in and why it shows it's small versus like powerful because i think you're supposed to kind of get like oh we fucked up real bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and now that you mention it that type of human ascension is something that cooper ultimately falls prey to in in, you know in Mm -hmm. the final episode Mm. um you know sort of a a similar similar hubris um in my opinion fascinating fascinating um Mm -hmm. so let's talk about what happens once we actually get inside the bomb because uh, uh to me what's notable here is that lynch does seem to play around a little bit with the the movement of the images and the sound here Mm. to where it seems like different different parts of the threnody here correspond to different types of of imagery that we see because like once we get inside the blast proper we get sort of a what i would describe as like an array of white dots that just sort of start Mm -hmm. flooding the screen and they almost remind me of like a swarm of bees and the music changes to like this sort of i can only think of like buzzing it it changes to like it has a distinctly different tone than just like the broad orchestral you know string movements that we hear in the initial in the initial push to the the atom bomb did any of you guys pick up on that as well
2: yeah i think it it reminded me most of um of cooper falling through non-existence and these sort of uh like buzzy cracky uh just i don't know like the way and and also like the white dots but in mostly that it, it seemed to be like we're just witnessing something that is uh, outside of our understanding. And I think thematically, I think it's supposed to be, it, this is between our world that we saw when we zoomed into the A-bomb. And then we're in this sort of like intermediary quote unquote non-existence phase, which is, and I think what we're just seeing is evocative imagery and sound. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of them inspired the other. Like if the sound design was done first and then the the like imagery was, Uh, came afterwards, or or what? But I I but I think the the thing that it most reminded me of was yeah, is the non-existence phase that we see, and I think it's sort of playing on that because directly afterwards we get shot into this sort of like circle of fire type thing, Mm. which I read as like that's like the rails that we sort of see the rest of the events on, um, but like between our world and that is this sort of crackling, um thing that we can't necessarily understand with our senses as we know it so it it presents itself as this evocative sound and image
0: mm.
3: yeah i can definitely see that that it it came across to me as being very much just kind of a visual representation of pure unbridled chaos um just because mm-hmm. it, it's incredibly disorientating i mean it's almost as if you could picture yourself just kind of flying or floating through all of that Uh, so you you know you don't really know what to think what to feel what to do um where you are what you're doing um yeah it just it completely just throws you off in terms of you know what what would you do in this situation if you were really in in the midst of you know just pure chaos that you have literally no control over um you know Mm. what would you think what would you feel and I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Just watching all of that stuff completely confused me. because thinking, I just I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I know what I was supposed to feel going into this part because it's clearly, you know, it's set up for a very specific purpose. But once you get in there, I feel like it is a deliberate attempt to just say, just push you off and just sort of I don't know, throw a complete curveball at you. Um, it really mm. threw me off guard.
4: Yeah, I agree. When I was uh... I was standing while watching this because I was, I was holding my uh, my daughter and um, I noticed during the scene, I backed way off the TV. Like I, <laughs> I noticed that I was, because I actually bumped into her, her crib at the other end of my bedroom. <laughs> and I, I just, I did pick up on that moment. And it's like you're saying, like I, it's the same way with me. I, I It makes you feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. and And yeah, it's just, it's overwhelming. And it's just funny that like, I sort of subconsciously, backed away and then i became aware of it and i would sort of notice during this episode i did do a lot of like moving forward stepping back like that like it's like uh when you have the opportunity to just sort of distance yourself from it this was the biggest moment in the episode where i literally bumped into the other end of the room (laughs) like trying to trying to kind of escape the chaos a little bit
1: yeah it is it is pretty dynamic and there are sections of this that do get a little bit um that do get a little bit quieter i guess you could say um but then but then it just it pummels you again. Like with just yeah. this this hit of, of music and mm-hmm. I, I really I enjoy the way that this music was was edited together, you know, because we're we're definitely not hearing it just straight through. Like they're they're picking and choosing sections mm-hmm. of it to to show us at certain moments. Like there's there's um there's a part where we're sort of flying headfirst into like this uh, what look like these multicolored clouds that are emerging. You know, like we see like a, a red burst show up and and yellow and, and, and green and all yeah. these colors. And, you know, there's all these corresponding booming sounds that go with that. And the soundtrack mm-hmm. is just these sort of ambient strings that are sort of being like padded and plucked. You know, they're not being like played proper, I guess. Mm. Um, but, yeah. but then But then immediately after that, we'll just get the screen filled with fire and mm. the music will just be at a fever pitch again and it just it really keeps you on your toes uh in that way it's great
2: yeah so- something i uh, that i just thought of as it was like when you get the sort of multicolored clouds i believe it's all swirling towards some sort of like um like hole in the center of the screen mm-hmm. and then even when you get blasted to the fire it still has this sort of like it's continuing that forward momentum that we started with towards this like center point and i don't necessarily view like i i don't i wouldn't think it's like a one to one like the bomb was dropped therefore bob was born into our uh plane of existence but i think more that like in this sequence even though it it is still likely just evocative imagery the fact that we're i at least i got the sense of this like forward motion towards this like center point of almost like, like you know, like a rift has been created by this event and we are like travelling through this rift and uh it's all like going towards this like uh, almost like a like a like birth imagery in a sense. Like you're uh mm-hmm. like we're heading towards this uh this creation and this these are all of the elements coalescing to create uh I think what it first dumps us out into is the convenience store, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, it sort of fades away into the convenience right. store. And the the music stays for a little while mm-hmm. on this convenience store scene. Um,
2: which yeah, which is shot very interestingly in how it's like it's very sporadic and otherworldly, like how we always see the woodsman. Um, mm-hmm. But the way it kind of moves backwards and forwards is really disorienting, how the smoke kind of comes out and then goes back in a little bit, then comes back out, <sighs> yeah. uh, and yeah. slowly fills mm-hmm. the entire screen, mm-hmm. and the lights and the woodsman.
1: Yeah, I just got to say too, you know, we we don't really think about it now, but the first time that we see this shot here, and you see the words "convenience store," I know I got the chills because we, this convenience store that we had been hearing of was like a big part of Twin Peaks lore. You know this mm-hmm. this room above the convenience store mm-hmm. where Philip Jeffries had described in Fire Walk with Me. Mm-hmm. And that we see very briefly in Firewalk with Me and the mm-hmm. Missing Pieces this this meeting mm-hmm. of of all these lodge creatures, uh, including a uh, woodsman. Incidentally, the first time we see the woodsman uh, is in Firewalk with Me. When you just see plainly there the sign that says convenience store, it's just like a, a real loregasm.
0: orgasm. Absolutely.
1: Uh, I know. I just definitely got a really. I got really really excited when I when yeah. I when I saw that and it's worth noting that what we see going on in the convenience store is like basically a series of flashes and the woodsman coming coming out from that and what we see in firewalk with me i think i don't know if this made it into the final film but we definitely see it in the missing pieces is one of the bearded woodsmen using this electrical device pulling a handle and it emits this huge flash And so I just thought that that callback Mm. was just so cool, you know. Mm. And then obviously we see later in the season when Mr. C goes to meet with Philip Jeffries, we're going to see a similar thing, where a woodsman is using this electrical device as to sort of reroute Cooper into this this new uh, this new realm. Mm. Um, So, anyways, I just I really appreciated the way that this single shot was able to call back to the the Twin Peaks lore and convey all this information really simply and effectively on top of just being a really interesting scene visually
0: Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it really seeing the words convenience store I instantly knew that we were you know just just I didn't know anything but I I had to I just had to pay even closer attention to everything that was happening because like you said, when we, you know, we first hear the convenience store referenced, it's with such gravity and like all the, the players we see above the convenience store, you know, that it, it has a lot to do with, uh, with the mystery of Laura Palmer at the end of the day. Cause that's sort of what we're, I think we're seeing, uh, in fire walk with me mm-hmm. and seeing the convenience store, like in this context, uh, and seeing, like, and having it be at least uh, tied to this event, the only thing that I could think of was, or, like, the only connection I could draw, and it's, a, it's a, I think, a, maybe an opaque one, but when, when, you know, when Hawk is going over the Owl Cave map in Season 2 with Andy, and he's talking about, you know, the corn and the black corn and the fire and the black fire, and... You know, it's all about how you use these things that, are, that determine if they are good or evil. Uh, we have, obviously, the atomic bomb, and, it's, and then all of the fire that we're, that we're thrown through, and then obviously all of the references to fire in Twin Peaks in general. We can infer that that is the black fire mm-hmm. of some kind. And the convenience store is host to all of these folks who obsessively torture people to get creamed corn. And creamed or the garmin garmin bozia. So mm-hmm. the fact that it's creamed corn, you know, it's a perversion. It's not corn on a stock. It's it's corn that's taken and processed and put in the can and sold. It is, you know, it's it's this the black corn, you'd say. And the convenience store is where you go to buy all prepackaged, mm-hmm. canned, fake quote unquote food. Mm-hmm. And so I I, th- I think that it's like consistent with what we're seeing like these are all of the perverted elements of human nature uh being represented through this incredibly uh striking visual journey mm. but and then all of the things that happen within the plot because we know that this is the convenience store but it's also a portal to a place called the dutchman's or or is, are they're one and the same. And also this convenience store blips in and out of our existence at different points at different times. Um, and I think we can maybe infer that the first time that it blipped into our existence was uh, 1945 during this, as, as a result directly of this um, nuclear test. Mm-hmm.
0: Is the, uh,
4: is the convenience store a physical place that we know of in something like is it is it ever shown like is it or is it just a uh, otherworldly place uh
1: we do see it again um we see it later i think it's part 15 okay. mr c rolls up to this convenience store Oh yeah. yeah. Um, is it
4: is it located anywhere or is it just uh, i is think it, that's
1: we don't I think
2: that's related to the coordinates that he wants right that's part of it
1: uh i don't I mean, because Ray tells him that uh, Jeffries is at the Dutchman's, and then Mr. Mm-hmm. C just tells him, you know, I I know what that is. Mm. Okay, um, and that's right. and yeah. so we then we see him um, a couple episodes later, just sort of roll up in his truck to this convenience yeah. store, and then okay. he meets with Jeffries. And when he comes back out, Richard is there waiting for him, you know, pulling right. pulling the gun out on him. So it, okay. it, it is it is a real place.
4: Yeah, cause I was, I was wondering if, cause my, my impression from it, and I don't know, uh, I don't think this is something that is known or unknown, but, um, I, I got the impression tied with the explosion that, like, when they, when they tested the, the, the atom bomb, I know they set up, like, model towns. And for some reason, I got the, like, uh, like that, like, uh, little idea in my head that, like, maybe the convenience store was set up as one of those buildings uh, that gets yeah. blown away. Yeah. And so this yeah, is sort like of it. showing, like, the the origin of the convenience store. And, like, it was built to be, like, blown up. And, like, you know, and then just being tied with the nuke is, like, where the uh, – it's where they came through, basically. And that's, yeah. like, sort of – But, like, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was, like, supposed to be located roughly somewhere else. But just the uh, juxtaposition of those scenes sort of put that in my head.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not in New Mexico because you know I, I doubt yeah. Cooper is going to go that far out of his way. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is. It does have a um, you know it does it does exist in in some okay. in some sense. Uh, yeah. Even though I think we do see it flicker out of existence at one point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe when. it's a maybe it's a roaming spectral <laughs> convenience store of some sort who knows it's probably yeah.
2: similar ish to uh, like Glastonbury Grove and how you can at certain times uh like pass through this this right. little gateway mm-hmm. when it's like you know whenever that may be
1: right mm-hmm. so we transition into the scene here with the experiment and I just want to point out really quickly that we get an extremely brief shot, probably just like a couple of seconds, of the portal effect that we see when people are about to enter, you know, "quote unquote" the zone. It's the same effect that we see Gordon almost get sucked up into when they go uh, with Hastings and mm-hmm. Diane to mm-hmm. that to that one weird rundown neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's the exact right. it's the exact same portal effect. Only we see it just very briefly for like a couple seconds in transition to this whole uh scene with with the experiment slash Judy whatever you want to call it um, mm. i don't I don't know quite what to make of that but it was just something that I noticed this time around that I didn't really notice before so mm. yeah huh. um so yeah the experiment barfs and mm. It's like some sort of fluid, and she's floating in suspended animation in a black void. And inside this liquid, we see a bunch of eggs, and we also see the Bob orb. Hmm. Uh, Pretty shocking moment. Uh, I think all of us were already reeling from what we had seen, yeah. and... I think we all sort of understood intuitively what had just happened here, which is that we were sort of seeing like covert origin story for Bob in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah,
2: and the fact that uh, the experiment is depicted definitely as feminine, um, you know, with like the just it's like like the figure floating through. I think that I mean, I don't know we've talked about this before, Nick, but I feel comfortable referring to this as Judy mm-hmm. um, I do too mm. so uh they're like this this sort of this uh uh just this whole sequence is I guess the linchpin for me with uh the concept that it's Judy working against Mr C to the end of getting back with Bob, and that this is where she parted with Bob, uh, like this is the beginning of the story and we are still witnessing, uh, this being played out like how, however, you know, whatever her ends were for, um, barfing Bob into existence. One thing I'm not like clear on is, uh, Bob's not necessarily in an egg the same way that the, we we can assume uh, that the frog moths are, um, Right, right. So Bob is sort of out there, existing on his own, um, and or or we can guess. And then the eggs are, we see the one hatch later, which we'll get to. But um, yeah, anyway, before I don't want to go too far because we'll 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 talk about all this stuff. But uh, I definitely feel like that this scene or this little just little sequence of of the experiment puking Bob into existence is like where we get sort of just to be, to be, this is, you know, where it was all born and it's drawing a d- direct parallel to the real life event that we are seeing of, of the dropping of the a bomb. Hmm. Um, and then this is the thematic repercussion that we've been dealing with on the show, like being blasted outward at us because right. hmm. Bob comes directly at us into the screen. We have to like take his face in like we have to do a lot in twin peaks hmm. Um, so it's, it's, I, where a lot of the times, like, the camera was moving forward towards something, now we have this moving towards us, um, like, something from the outside coming in, uh, at least that's how I looked at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you touched on something that I think is gonna come up again, uh, later in this episode when we talk about the birth of the Laura orb, which is that I think it might be more helpful to think of some of this stuff in terms of metaphor rather than thinking about like, well, you know, Bob was birthed as an as an orb, so where did he go from there? You know what I mean? Like I think right, it's right, just right. I think I think it's more um I think it's more to the point just to accept that that we are to a certain <laughs> extent dealing within the realm of like symbology. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um So yeah, anyways. Um Happy birthday, Bob. And uh we <laughs> cut very jarringly at this point. Mm-hmm. I always forget that this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But we cut very jarringly to another scene of of fire. Like just massive fire and the threnody kicks back in again. And we see some sort of some sort of object appear from the center of all this and it's like it looks gold Mm -hmm. but I can't tell Mm -hmm. if it's if it's that way because it's actually gold or if it's just (sighs) reflecting what's around it because if it's gold then it's impossible not to think about the the quote unquote seed you know the thing that Mm -hmm. makes the tulpas that made Dougie that made Diane so, um, I, f-
2: I feel very strongly that that is what we're seeing. Mm. You think so? That it's I think so. Yeah, because it is. It, most importantly, it's reflective, and we see the reflection in it. And anytime we see the tulpa seed or whatever the the black box shrunk into, uh, it's always depicted as this like shiny golden object. So, I don't I don't think the, like, like what it, we see the reflection first and then we zoom into the reflection and then from there we begin our zoom into like the mob zone so to me it almost seemed like this was like the mirror this was like if we just witnessed the extreme evil end of the spectrum we are now going through this object of duality into the inverse which thematically is sort of what the tulpa seed does or, or at least what we've kind of seen it do is that it it is a just a. Uh, I think it's t- it must be tied to the doppelgangers as well, and how they exist in the lodge as these sort of opposing entities, and this I think thing is just a symbol of that duality, and the the reflection I think is very significant because it's supposed to be you know I think and it, you know, it does go back to to that like owl cave thing of like all the the inverse elements that. Like like the corn and the and the fire and the smoke and all that stuff. Um, but that's that's just how I looked at it. Because the first time you see it, it's just so strikingly resembles that tulpa seed that I don't see why it would be something different if it looks pretty much exactly like it.
1: Yeah, Plus I agree. Plus all this other yeah. shit. I, I agree. And it's interesting also that we push into this mass and we just end up in this field of red. It looks to me like... Uh, blood cells, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, it's shooting down.
1: Yeah, like that. That's definitely what it what it seemed like to me. So, um, you know, per- perhaps getting to this idea that we are we are uh, birthing something else apart from from just Bob as well. Here, um, yeah, like you said, we fade away from that, and we begin just an absolutely gorgeous, long, slow push through the purple ocean up onto this rock up the tower and into this tiny window it really <laughs> is like amazing the scale of this thing mm-hmm. like similar to the atom bomb where we get the slow push on that we start from so far away and we we end up in just this tiny infinitesimally small little little window here it's it's a beautiful shot in mm-hmm. my opinion mm-hmm. i
2: love it yeah yeah. yeah, and I think it's consistent too with the imagery we've seen just um, like that was another supporting factor for me with the thinking that that's like a reflective tulpa seed is that we had that like into the atom bomb and then we have that sort of through the fire and now we have this same slow crawl into it, like a very small tiny space very far away again now into uh, whatever we, the fireman's sweet crib we can call it mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yep yeah, it, it is a sweet crib. Um, and, in in fact, it's worth pointing out that much of the fireman's house, quote unquote, is the same building that was used in Mulholland Drive for Club Silencio. It's the same building. Oh, really? That's, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's cool.
1: Yeah, like the, the theater where the fireman watches the atomic bomb and all that, it's the same room where uh, oh. Rebecca Del Rio sings "Yorando." Yeah,
3: I can see that now. Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. That's really cool.
1: Yep. It's great. So, first thing we see here is Senorita Dido chilling on the couch. She's vibing out to this song called uh, Slow 30s Room, mm. which <laughs> uh, was created by David Lynch and Dean Hurley, who is the sound... Uh, slash music supervisor for twin peaks we see the same object that we saw from part three that nido flipped the lever on that caused her to electrocute and fall into the nether space we see that that object here again and it is sounding some sort of alarm and the fireman emerges from behind it he walks very slowly Mm-hmm. I i had forgotten how long this takes here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he, he walks very slowly from here. He shuts off the alarm and he goes into the uh, aforementioned movie theater where he watches everything we just saw he watched the first half of uh twin peaks the return episode eight, essentially and uh <laughs> yeah yeah very strange He's just sitting there watching twin
2: peaks like hmm, this shit's fucked up
1: <laughs> yep yep <laughs> and uh he pauses on bob he, he pushes the pause button uh right there on, on on bob's face and he looks at it for a while and he starts floating uh, mm-hmm. like you do and <laughs> Senorita Dido <laughs> follows him here and I love this shot of her walking towards the theater because it uses one of Lynch's favorite nonsensical things which is a spotlight of totally indeterminate purpose or origin mm-hmm. It's it's <laughs> something that appears again and again in his work and I always think it's great. It shows up a few times in the season, but Senorita died out. She's walking, and there's just this spotlight following her wherever she goes. And mm. there's no rhyme or reason to it, other than that it just looks really beautiful.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, it casts a sh- her shadow uh, like in front of her, so it has this really, just this really cool you know uh effect of like as she moves the shadow moves and it also like wraps around the corners and gets larger as it reaches the bigger walls um I love that I loved how it looked
1: yeah mhm and uh we get uh a-, a hit of some new Angelo Battalamenti music created for this season of which there aren't actually too many that show up it's called the fireman and it is a really I, I think just really gorgeous track that serves as a really effective emotional underpinning for this whole birth of the Laura orb scene.
0: Mhm.
2: Yeah. It's it's classic but lamenti, and I'll take like any little bits of it that I can get because <laughs> <laughs> there there's not a, a well no his his the just the the score for uh this new s- season has just been unbelievable but he I think the way that they work together, like Lynch and lamenti like he, I think Lynch just gets compositions out of that guy that maybe no one else could. He just the the sounds are so evocative, like every time.
1: Yeah, definitely one of the great director composer relationships. Period, like in film history for sure. Um, so yeah, the fireman, he starts like. I don't know I don't know. I don't want to call it barfing because that sounds like too crude a term for this really beautiful scene that happens here. Uh he starts expelling yeah Golden Miasma mm. and I think it's not an accident that the shape that this takes is very much reminiscent of a uterus and ovaries. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, like like it, yeah, it takes on that of sort of imagery.
1: like T, that sort of like T shape mm. with like uh with like the sort of the, the bunching up at the ends and everything like that.
3: Mm. Well, I saw it as that, but I also saw it as kind of uh, a small representation of the tree of life. Ah, so, yes. But um, I, maybe that's just my read on it. But um, yeah, I just saw it's the tree of life, and obviously you know that's what the the orb of laura palmer comes out of and so it's kind of like you know he's bringing her to life so but i mean it it could be both ways you could see it one way the other way or you could see it both ways but i personally saw it both Mm. ways
1: yeah absolutely Mm. yeah either works for sure Mm. and um so yeah um this orb falls into senorita dido's hands and she is looking at this orb with just uh a great a great feeling of of joy and Mm. she kisses the orb and she sends it up into this giant apparatus that is (laughs) shaped like a a horn of some sort and the orb enters the map of the world that's on screen and it finds its way to the united states Boy, this is uh, this is a huge ball of worms. Mm, (laughs) So this whole scene and the notion that Laura is some cosmic entity, some chip in this in this grand uh, you know lodge based plan here. But I guess the main question that I have after. You know really living with this scene for for a while now is like how much how much does that really change ultimately like d- does it does it change the show for you at all um to, to read this literally
4: yeah I, for, for me i don't really i like as her being some like uh predestined like cosmic thing i just like it's it's kind of it's kind of like uh to it's kind of silly to just not accept parts of things that are shown but like i just don't love the idea it doesn't really change anything that happens but it, it adds in this like fate chosen one thing that i just i can't i can't parse so i just kind of ignore it
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. See for me personally that I think it I wouldn't necessarily say that it changes anything but I think it's it's very integral um, to the entire narrative because you got to bear in mind that this is you know it's 25 years after you know sort of the last piece of you know Twin Peaks that we had and yet we're still seeing Laura Palmer in the opening credits when we already we know the entire story of her murder and who did it and you know and that was all that's all been resolved and yet the fact that we still see her in the opening credits and the fact that we we saw her picture in the police station way back in the, at the start towards the start of the season shows that she is such an in, an integral part of this universe and the kind of it's almost as if if she didn't exist nothing else would have happened so then it kind of makes you question well should she exist then because technically if she doesn't exist that means that she wouldn't be murdered and then all of this weird other stuff might not you know wouldn't have happened because agent cooper wouldn't have had to go to twin peaks in the first place to investigate a murder case and and all this sort of stuff so i feel like it's really sort of hammering home the fact that she is so integral to this universe and the amount of people that she she meant clearly meant a lot to um means that and also i think it's kind of to me it was kind of like cyclical like you could actually sort of repeat the entire thing so it, by sending her down now is that speaking more to the events that we previously witnessed or is it speaking more to the fact that we actually we could see this happen again in the future so mm. yeah. which also which yeah. also plays into the is it um, future or is it past thing as well right So it definitely yeah. does yeah. I, I was going to even mention something about that like the is it future or
2: is it past Nick, to your point of does Lara as some sort of whatever she is, cosmic figure, uh does that change Twin Peaks for for me? Uh yes and no, because it doesn't change it in the fact that like I enjoy it any less. Um, but I think it fundamentally changes like the the what we saw in the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um it changes the like you know, it it broadens the whole thing. And I don't think that Any of this stuff was in David Lynch or Mark Frost's mind when they were working on those first two seasons. Definitely not. This has this is meant to be an exposition on that, Mm. and what we see, like at the end of this whole run, is the undoing of Twin Peaks as we know it. So I think that distinctly, this is meant to alter how we view Twin Peaks and Laura and all of the things that we've that we've seen. And I, but. I think like most uh like pressingly is that it's it's depicting Laura as an antithesis to Bob and mm. or or that like it it she this essence was created directly to combat this other essence and it was born into uh our world through a screen which I think is interesting and like cuz Lynch often uses uh theaters as these like sort of bridge points between reality like mm-hmm. we see in, in Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. um, in this exact same room mm-hmm. where that is sort of where uh, the without spoiling too much because I know you haven't seen it Sean that's where a major shift mm-hmm. between realities occurs mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of the nature of, of cinema in general is like you are we're mm-hmm. here and we're looking at a screen which again is a reflection I don't know if that's significant or not but like it's this reflection in, in into that screen into like what we've seen comes laura comes uh, laura palmer mm. towards our earth very much depicting whatever this entity is as like outside of it but the fact that it's indirect um it's like directly related to bob to me it changes the whole story because like and then what we see afterwards with with sarah palmer and the frog moth like i think that the whole story goes a lot it just it it this in in its, in its heart of hearts, Twin Peaks is a story about a girl and her trauma. And I think the, the fact that the wormhole never ends. Like, it, yeah, okay, she, we found out who did it. Mm. And we had some closure in some sense. But that does not in any way, uh, like, absolve what has happened. And it doesn't erase it. And it actually, in a lot of ways, the fact that she just died and no one – and everyone's left here to pick up the pieces – the, the sorting of the pieces in and of itself like lends itself to this ever sprawling out of the story because we never ever get the full story like in one go so i think witnessing Lara's birth as she's not just a tortured girl she is like some sort of cosmic force that was placed there to be an antithesis an antithesis excuse me to another uh cosmic force of of the opposite spectrum um i think it it greatly broadens my interest in leland sarah and laura palmer and the palmers in that house and like Mm. all of the stuff that we see come into play throughout the return later on especially with sarah palmer and her relationship to to laura uh and Uh. i don't it's not as simple i don't think as like um uh, like now Bob or now she's just possessed by Judy like no I think that there is um, like Lara is a person she was born like that did happen but as we see like with the frog moth I think that whatever the fireman was trying to do here gets subverted in the next scene by the frog moth which I think it was like and then so if we can read it as like Bob was born and then as a result Lara is born quote-unquote born and then as a result of that this frog moth thing goes and in, infects the eventual mother of lara like in now like so that was like okay that was the move for the bad guys and now twin peaks the show that we've been seeing is like the collective uh end game move like like where do we go from here
1: it does add sort of an elemental quality to these three pillars of the Twin Peaks universe in Laura, Leland, and Sarah. I I guess what what I'm having trouble reconciling or I don't know if that's the right word or just making sense of generally in my mind is this idea that Laura is this source of pure light and energy that is sent down as an antithesis to evil and the depiction that we we see in the actual show and in firewalk with me because laura is definitely not uh some you know some shiny beacon of light in the show you know she's this she's a very troubled individual she's a dark horse essentially who yeah, yeah who essentially exists to be um abused and murdered that is her function in the show so i'm just trying to like i'm trying to reconcile those two ideas that she is like a mm. cosmic force of good and the idea that she was like just so incredibly uh i don't know like downtrodden in in her life like i just i i'm having yeah. i i just don't i don't quite know how to connect those dots mm. do you does that make any sense mm.
4: That, that's yeah. my problem also, is if she is supposed to be this force of good, like, is it successful? What was her purpose intended to be versus what happened? Because it's a gross take to think that they sent her there to have that stuff happen to her. or right. it was like a lure for Bob or something, so that everything that we see at the end of Season 3 would happen would be the biggest stretch for, like, a successful implementation of Laura. Mm. And then the other interpretation I can come up with was like you said like the frog moth kind of messed things up and ultimately they were not successful which kind of feels more thematically correct with the ending of the season but also i yeah like it's the same thing I, i don't i don't quite get it so i like it's not great, but I just like so I sort of push it away because I just I'm having trouble yeah. with that too. See, yeah.
1: see, this is what I, this is what I was talking before about about Sean and you know you mentioned like it's silly to sort of you know take some things at face value and and not others, but at a certain point, like there's part of me that just wants to read this whole scene of Laura manifesting as this golden ball as just Lynch's way of communicating to us that laura is extremely important and that she Mm -hmm. is the central driving force of twin peaks and you know that's something that would be reinforced in uh an even greater way in the finale so you know i I think it's fascinating obviously from a a lore quote-unquote perspective but there's, there's really just this strong part of me that, that just wants to read it in these purely symbolic terms.
4: Yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what it's, I mean? I think that's where I'm
4: at. Yeah,
3: like, yeah. Well, I mean, the- so, uh, but, I but,
1: but, but, look, the beauty of it is that uh, there, it, it can be read in any number of different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you- no two people are going to have exactly the same read on anything that happens here. You could take, so.
3: you take it at face value of being every time that we see her in the show, including this very episode. It's always her homecoming picture, which I think is possibly just a representation of the absolute purity that she is supposed to represent, but because of the evil forces that are in the world, she is I wouldn't necessarily say dealt a bad hand because she makes some very bad decisions in her life in terms of, you know, her drug abuse and whatnot and the the kind of lifestyle that she that she chooses to live. Um, which you know we don't really get too much we get sort of bits and pieces of it but it's not until fire walk with me when you get the full story as to her falling from grace so i think that perhaps she's supposed to be this representation of purity hence you know it's always that picture that's used and plus it's in a sort of a golden orb so she kind of you know it's kind of like that's her halo of sorts i suppose um yeah. so it's kind of representing her as being this figure of you know absolute purity who is brought down to this earth for some reason that I don't know we can't really sort of come to one conclusion on um and then just things escalate from there, but that's as much as I can take from it without basically without going insane so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that there's
2: the d- depiction of Lara as just this, this pure being of goodness is definitely not what we are shown. But I think that that has a lot to do with either the frog moth scene or just the fact that uh, she, she gets, she's tormented by Bob from the time she's like a young girl. Mm-hmm. So like she like from the, if you read the secret diary, um, which I know is like whatever semi-canon um, she's sort of like, depicted as a pretty innocent young kid who is just you know, wants to hang out with her cousin. And, uh, all of the, the darkness happens as she starts obviously being molested by her father and mm-hmm. having these disassociating experiences where she is sort of forced to split her identity, which is common like among trauma victims. And, I think like the beauty of this show is that you can totally read things symbolically. And then I think you can read more into like the plot and what we're shown. And they sort of like harmonize with each other because like symbolically, of course, like Laura, Laura and her struggle is the like focal point of, of twin peaks and just having it shown like, as like this otherworldly being creating her from his like head and it being blessed by this woman and then shot into the screen um like it's just this like clear depiction of like loving and caring and uh that that is what she truly represents and that is what gets perverted and uh completely thrown on its head by the opposing forces And all of like the like that's the story that we end up seeing is like that's her fracture that she had to go through is sort of being represented as these two opposing cosmic forces seemingly at war with one another. And I think that is like the plot, like that's what we dig into on the show. And it is all just sort of symbolism of like this girl and her um, how she is dealing with inhumanity and like how it completely broke her in two
1: yeah it's, it's it's a lot man it's it's a lot mm-hmm. um and yeah it, there's just there's like i said uh when we start talking about this it's it's a can of worms i mean it's 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 dealing with the very fundamental building blocks of the show here let's move to 1956 we're back in new mexico we see the birth of <laughs> What we refer to as the frog moth, there is no <laughs> canon name for this thing. People call it the frog bug, or people call it some variation on that, like the frog bunny bug thing. Like, there, there is no real name for it. I just call it the frog moth. Mm. Um, but yeah, you're all welcome to call it uh, whatever you would like. Very convincing effect here. It looks pretty real to me. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's it's extremely it's extremely gross. The way that it moves is very disconcerting. <laughs>
2: um, the way it drags the sand too, it really it really does look like yeah yeah. Real. Mm.
1: yeah it's 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 extremely gross. Um, so yeah, we catch up with a little girl who we now know to be Sarah Palmer. Like we we know pretty much for a fact that that's who this is um mm-hmm. because of mark Frost's book and because of the, the the timeline and just all the circumstances sort of pointing to the fact that this is sarah palmer so like this is mm-hmm. like even if you go to sarah palmer's wiki they will describe these scenes here. So it is widely accepted canon that this little girl is Sarah Palmer. Um, and we get just just a, a series of uh, just kind of innocent scenes here with this boy. She finds a penny that's heads up, which she's convinced is good luck, which is kind of a cool connection to... Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln, the woodsman is played by a Lincoln impersonator.
0: Mm.
1: Um, <laughs> pretty interesting. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And they, yeah, like I said, they just have sort of a cute, innocent conversation here, which ends with him asking if he can give her a kiss, uh, which, which he does. And then she walks upstairs and he just has this look on his face. Just this, this smirk, just like, hell yeah, I'm just, I'm the Mac right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> from there we see the woodsman fade in from the desert. Like, that's that's how they show up in the world, is that they just sort of fade in. Mm. And they end up accosting this couple in a car, where, like you mentioned earlier, Sean, once the woodsman actually approaches the driver, it's like a very stuttery effect. Where... The driver looks at the woodsman in horror and it's this this, this very this very choppy uh, effect on the camera and the guy's reaction to the woodsman is one of horror but also he's he's transfixed like he can't look away from the woodsman
4: mm-hmm.
1: and the woodsman is repeating this now famous uh, uh, refrain of of got a light mm-hmm. got a light, got a light. <laughs> and uh it's worth noting also that the the way that everything slows down here and the way that the woman's screams are muffled mm. it's it's very reminiscent of what we saw with Ray earlier, mm. right yeah,
2: mm-hmm. yep, sure is
1: yeah, n- not an accident at all, and so the driver is able to break away from the woodsman's gaze, he swipes around. Uh, another woodsman and they they just they speed off and uh, uh, the the, uh, quote unquote main woodsman played by the Abraham Lincoln impersonator his name (laughs) is Robert Broski uh who will just this this actor who has barely done anything he is now immortal because of of what happens here (laughs) Mm -hmm. like this guy is gonna show up at every twin peaks event and convention etc for the rest of his life because of these scenes that he has in this episode (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) it's great i'm happy for him um rightfully so Yeah. yeah Yeah, absolutely. I I always see uh he seems like a really great guy from interviews that I've seen with him. He seems very grateful to be a part of this world and uh you know, I I always see photos of people who meet him at conventions and stuff and, you know, they have him uh have him grip their skull or you know, do stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and he's he's more than happy to do it. He wanders into this radio station and Oof. Mm -hmm, In a very disturbing little scene here, he approaches the woman at the front desk, which again, there's like another little stuttering effect here. Yeah. He grabs her by the skull, he pushes her down, and there's just an absolutely disgusting sound of (laughs) blood. just being squeezed from her head Mm. and it is so grisly and it's very quick and we just get a close-up shot that's like being deliberately shaken around where you just sort of get like this impressionistic view of all of her blood running down her face
0: yeah Mm -hmm.
1: it's it's horrifying
4: I had to like turn away. I'm holding my like baby. I'm like, Jesus, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, it was just, yeah. That sound is really the worst part. Like, yes. I hate the sound so much. Yeah. I think the sound
1: would be enough to traumatize your child. I (laughs) I hate to say it, but. (laughs)
4: Yeah. It's it's It's
1: very bad. And uh, once he's done with her, he makes his way over to the DJ and this song is playing my prayer by the platters which you know dylan and i we discussed this on a previous episode but now that this song has been used in this context it is impossible to hear it and think of anything else but this Mm -hmm. like lynch just has a way of permanently recontextualizing these these songs um you know sort of like how he did with blue velvet and uh you know Yorando, which is a, a spanish cover of of a roy oberson song he he takes control of the microphone he stops the music and he starts reciting this poem this now famous poem mm-hmm. this is the water and this is the well drink full and descend the horse is the white of the eyes and dark within
4: I say that all the time because I'm weird. Mm -hmm. I I, I love his delivery. this is the water. (laughs) Is that your
1: your lullaby to your kids now now that they've seen this episode?
4: Yeah. I'm not quite that dark but I I have to admit before recording when I was sort of waiting for things to get going I was recording myself saying this over and over again just as my check. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: That's (laughs) awesome.
4: Which which is a horrible thing to admit to other people but yeah I just just love how he delivers like just his gravelly voice Mm -hmm. it's just it's, it's a really memorable set of lines. Mm-hmm.
1: It is. It's part of the tradition in this show of memorable little, little uh, couplets like this. I guess the other notable one being is uh, through the darkness of future past, mm-hmm. the magician longs mm-hmm. to see one chance out between two worlds firewalk with me. Mm-hmm. Just really evocative combinations of words here. Mm-hmm. What do we think about this poem in terms of its content, do we think that it has specific connotations to the world of Twin Peaks? Here, I mean, obviously we have the horse, which is synonymous with with, uh, with Judy or perhaps evil more broadly. But uh, do you guys have any other uh, any other thoughts about that?
2: Not necessarily. I think it's i I think we do get like the little tidbits, like you said, like with the horse and. Um... Similarly, with uh, with like the, I think we could think of this poem and the Fire Walk with Me poem as like maybe like sister poems, uh, at least with like one of them mentioning fire and one of them water. But with that one, we have like this the magician who is uh, like that's a character that like a Lodge character that's David Lynch's son mm-hmm. uh, is referred to as the magician. Um, so it's like I don't think there's necessarily like inherent meaning in there, but we get these little like snippets of stuff that we see. Um, uh, but I, I think that this thing, it's like, as it is supposed to like function as like almost like, like a lullaby. Cause it does just like lull the whole town to sleep. It's mm-hmm. just like a very I feel like I've used the word evocative like a thousand times on this podcast, but this is a very evocative. Mm-hmm. poem. Like, it's just, you don't have, you don't have to think about what it means. It's just the words in that order with this cadence creates this very hypnotic, um, sort of like i don't know it, it it's like it creates you puts me in like a daze almost to where even even like the accompanying shots of the dj skull being like kind of cracked mm. and like his wide eyes um i was like yeah me too buddy <laughs> like i'm just sitting here like holy shit what, um but i don't i don't i don't have any clue as to like if it could be referencing anything um that we should know about
1: yeah i guess the only other thing that i would say would be this idea of drinking full where we see the creature enter sarah palmer's mouth and descend yeah. into her yeah and, and you know the dark within it, it's you know perhaps alluding to the darkness within sarah you know we mm-hmm. will see later in the season her literally opening up her face to reveal a darkness um so, yeah, I guess that would be my only other thought on that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, because that that thing that she reveals, I'm pretty sure is that is, like, when she opens her face, that I'm pretty sure that she's showing that that's Lara's doppelganger inside of her, mm-hmm. um, based on, like, the smile that we see, and then we see, like, the, the spiritual mound finger, and the only other case we see of someone opening up their face is Lara. mm mm-hmm. um, so I definitely think that like this poem and like the the frog moth crawling into her mouth um, I think this is all this is all like a power play by Team Judy
1: yeah mm-hmm. and uh, his poem has the effect of lulling everybody to sleep in the town and I, I really like this idea of there being a combination of words that sort of like the the key to infiltrating everyone's consciousness mm. it's just it's a really it's a really neat idea i feel like
0: mm. so mm-hmm.
3: yeah it's 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 like a spell really yeah, um, yeah. at least that's how it presents itself mm. yep i also kind of like it it's not necessarily tied to to the poem itself but two of the people that it actually reaches out to is there's there's a waitress um cleaning Sort of the the worktop of a, a diner, which is very much, you know, kind of like the, the double R diner, um, and you've also got a mechanic working on a car who's very much, you know, speaks to sort of you know Ed, um, so you kind of got the yeah. you know, the the Ed and Norma thing there as well. So, <laughs> oh, that's all, I didn't even think of. Yeah, that. yeah, that's something. It hadn't cool. actually occurred to me until I rewatched it today. I thinking Oh yeah, because it, even the way that the diners laid out in this particular scene. It's it's very much a, it's kind of just got like a, a long U shape, kind of like the one in uh, in the double R, and then obviously you know Ed runs you know kind of like a mechanics workshop, so it's kind of I don't know it's just kind of playing with that I suppose. But yeah. w- whether that's you know representative of anything because you know I mean we do, we do see Ed and, Ed and Norma in this season, but it's not really. You know, spoken to again, so I, I whether that's deliberate or not I'm not entirely sure um, I would probably say that it is deliberate in, in some way, because Lynch is very much, and, and people who listen to this who know me and what I'm like are probably not going to be surprised at how predictable I'm being here, but I'm going to compare um, this to Metal Gear Solid, because that's just the kind of person I am, but <laughs> You watch, you, yeah, yeah, you watch, you watch the the trailer for a Metal Gear game, and you, despite the fact that you might not understand everything that's going on, you can come away from that trailer thinking that there was not a single thing in that trailer that was an accident. Every single thing has been considered and is is incredibly deliberate. And I get the feeling that Lynch is very—he will sit there and he will meticulously think about know in terms of you know camera placement and just certain things the way that certain shots should be framed and and things that he's trying to i don't know just play with it to the extent where sometimes it even makes us read too much into a situation where we are literally just reading too much into it where it could we could just take certain things at face value but it's the way that it's been presented to us that we just kind of Put more of ourselves into it, and then that's how all the crazy theories come out. Um, and you know, all these theories will never have proper conclusions. But it's just it's what we do, and that's part of why we love it so much.
1: Yeah, that's that's always a question with Lynch. You know, dating back to probably as far back as I would say Blue Velvet, which is this this question of intentionality mm. and how much of what he's evoking he's actually aware of. And it's it's really difficult to, to say, but I, I think we can safely say that he's a very intuitive artist and that probably more so than than thinking about this stuff in really strict terms, uh, like building blocks, he just sort of, he has a, a feel for, for what resonates. And so um cert- certain connections certain ideas might might spring from that um even even if he doesn't necessarily think about it uh logically you know in in his his inner voice or or what have you um mm-hmm. but yeah he just he he has a knack for presenting things that that can be really meticulously dissected and, and felt and, and read in a number of different ways. Mm. Um, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a really think... uncanny ability that he's he's just always had. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of great artists have that where they are able to not question what they're creating. They just draw from from that well and they you know that, that imagination thing and it it maybe is coming from a subconscious place and they are not cognizant of exactly what it means to them in the moment but like like uh it cre- it is something and then as as that as like, other people watch it they like you said Josh put their own um you put yourself into mm-hmm. it and and it truly becomes this like interactive thing that is is born from the fact that it doesn't have a clear concise um explanation because the person who created it wasn't creating it from that place like it wasn't You know, it's not like if you ever read about like J.K. Rowling, she says that she thought of like how Harry Potter ends and then wrote all of Harry Mm -hmm. Potter. Like she just thought of basically, okay, this is the this is the boy. This is what ends up happening. How do I turn this into seven books? Mm -hmm. Whereas Lynch, it's like he's clearly just interpreting his own work from decades ago and and just sort of he obviously caught that bug and is is chasing it down. Um, But I I can even speak to it, too, because, like, I'm a, like, I I don't write songs very often. But when I do, it's usually just because, I don't know, I have this, like, itch or this feeling. Like, I just have to get out. And sometimes I just write the words that come to mind, and I don't think too much about what they mean. And then I might go back and read them, like, a couple months later, sort of knowing, like, having at least an idea of, like, the mental state that I was in at the time. And I can totally read into my own, like, psyche of, like... I didn't know what I—that's what I meant at the time—but this is sort of my interpretation now. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine that it's something similar, like with how um, Lynch or other um, like abstract filmmakers sort of approach their work, where it's like you're just going to uh, you just you have an idea, and that in and of itself is worth running with, and then the the why and the what sort of gets fleshed out in the after effects, oftentimes by other people like the consumer, the person who's viewing it or listening to it or watching it or whatever, like their interpretation ends up being like as valid as the creators themselves.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So we've reached the end. And the last thing that we see in this episode is the woodsman walking off into the desert. And we hear faintly over the soundtrack, the sound of a horse whinnying, mm-hmm. which just feels perfect. Credits pop up, starring Kyle McLaughlin, And we eventually cut back to the image of Sarah Palmer laying on her side. Mm-hmm. And just perfect, perfect ending to this, mm-hmm. I think.
2: Her peaceful face kind of goes into a scowl. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah,
1: as she's lying there. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know what? I've brought this up before. I know I brought it up in the DM, but I'm obsessed with this idea of how we would perceive this episode differently if it came at a different point in the season. Like, I really, I really think it comes at a good point in the in the season, and I think it's definitely not an accident that we see it after, you know, Mister C is resurrected and we see our first glimpse of the bob orb and all that but like imagine if this had come last for example like imagine if carrie page screams the lights go out and then we pull up on new mexico 1945 and then this whole episode happens uh, am i crazy or, or would we think about this episode and the entire season differently if that were the case
3: I know. I personally I so. would. Yeah, yeah. I I feel that this particular episode would completely lose its impact if it was right at the end. Really? Yeah. Personally, yeah. I think that this is perfectly placed within the season itself, because it just it completely throws you off. But by this point, you will you hopefully you're so far invested in the story as it is that to get an episode like this, which gives you more things to think about than you completely bargained for and it kind of it made me recontextualize things that I had already previously established in my own mind to the point where things I I thought I had sort of written in stone I had to completely just demolish and rethink those things because just putting it here for some reason just made me kind of watch the rest of the season in a completely different way it's it's really hard to describe um but I feel like if I was to get this at the end it would be just kind of it would just feel like a bit of a cop-out you know just like you know oh here's the answers you were looking for right at the end and thinking well no because it's kind of by that point I don't really want those answers then I want it part way through the season so then it's just always with me and I can constantly break this episode down whilst I'm going through the rest of the season plus I feel like the very last episode of this season is just incredible I feel like that's it's just the perfect end to to this season just because it there's a slight glimmer of hope and then it's just it's completely shattered right at the end um and I feel like that is for me personally that is just the way the perfect way to end it so if this was at the end I I don't know I mean having said that it's it's just one of those what if situations where I'm never really going to truly know unless I was in that position but I'm never going to be in that position because I've already seen it all so if I was to maybe make a point of if I hadn't watched it before watch all of the season and then this one at the end then I might feel differently but for me personally it would lose its impact but i'm not sure
1: yeah i think that what's good about this episode where it is is that it it sort of puts you on on edge for everything that comes afterwards because from this point on you really have it in your head that like fucking anything could happen you know yeah. <laughs> like once yeah. once this yeah. once this episode is in your head you just you're watching the rest of the season on pins and needles and I do think you're right like the best argument for not putting it at the end is just the fact that the ending that we got is so like shattering and haunting mm. and heartbreaking that I think it would probably detract from that a little bit
2: mm. yeah I think it would be it would have been a little like ham-fisted if they just you know to end it on this grandiose of a sequence I think it was actually it it enriched the the rest of uh the return for me because none of the stuff got really touched very much like throughout you know the the plot kind of continued as we knew it um and like all the sort of threads kept sort of moving in that same direction whereas this for me it just sort of like broadened my uh i don't know broadened my interest or broadened the scope of like you said josh like i didn't like it i thought i had some things like some pieces in place and Mm -hmm. then you you see this and then all of a sudden you are forced to just like throw out that deck of cards and just take a brand new one and say, okay, I'm going to watch the rest of this season knowing that um, I don't know shit and just sort of letting it take you in. I don't know that the season would have been less effective. Like the, just the overall plot would have been less effective if we didn't have this at part eight. Um, like if we just got, you know, if part eight was just more Dougie and, and so on. Um, and then we didn't get this like release until the very, very end. I don't know that the plot necessarily would have suffered, but I definitely think that the plot was like enriched by having this, this sort of, uh, excursion directly in the middle. Mm. Um, and having it really actually have you go backwards and start thinking about a lot of stuff. That has to do with the first season and the second season and and just the the mystery as a whole. And then, like, we go back to part nine and and so on. You know, we get more and more tidbits. Like, we get more woodsmen. Um, We end up getting more talk about Judy and all that stuff. But having it at the very end, I think, would have just sort of been like, A, like you guys are saying, it would have totally nixed that incredible moment where we hear the scream which i think is a huge that scream is in a lot of ways that's twin peaks mm-hmm. like that's the twin peaks uh in a nutshell mm-hmm. but in addition to that i think it would have i think it would it would have put a little bit more like weight on this in terms of like use this as your roadmap to figure out everything you just saw which is, I don't think how, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. Like, I I no. think it really is. Um, like there's things that like, and I probably even went a little overboard with the things that it was trying to tell, tell me like plot wise, but above, like above all else, it's, it really is just this like absolute masterpiece of artwork that, um, I think was very refreshing because mm-hmm. even though I was a fan of the Dougie plots, uh, the Dougie plot and all of the, um, uh, you no, know, basically, I was, I was a huge fan of everything up to part seven. I had no complaints, mm-hmm. um, but to get this completely existential blast was—it um, was a pleasure, honestly. Uh, mm. And I, I'm super glad that we we got it when we did. Mm.
3: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this. What you were saying about this sort of being a, a map as to you know just figure it out for yourself. I feel like it is that, but it works better here because I feel like if this episode was right at the very end, it would be, it would kind of have prequelitis. If you see what I mean, because by that point you've got the full story. So you would just be kind of getting this, this little bit. If we are to take this as an origin story, I'm not necessarily saying it is, but if we are to take it as that for the sake of argument, if you have it at the end, it would kind of, for me personally, not feel as good because you're thinking, well, I know the full story now, whereas this kind of by the time I'd seen the ending, I had this to kind of lay next to it, and just I had a lot more to think about rather than just kind of getting that full story and then going back to this because you've got to think we're on part eight here in certain seasons, depending on what it is and you know and what kind of series it is. This could well have turned out to just be a bit of a filler episode, but you know if this If you are to take this as a filler episode, then it's one hell of a fucking filler episode because it gives you, well, frankly, more information than I could fucking handle. So if we were to take this as just being a filler episode, then it's possibly the the best one because it just... It gives you so much to expand what you already thought you had a grasp on and make you think that certain things that you had figured out, you now no longer do but then it also gives you a lot more information as to do, just i don't i don't know it's the kind of thing where that i could go on about it for hours um and probably not really get anywhere <laughs> so, <laughs> so but yeah
1: yeah well i guess uh going on about it for hours and not getting anywhere is uh the perfect way to wrap this up uh
2: the 119 way
1: yes exactly <laughs> exactly um wow we did it guys we got through this episode Whew, um, was a beast. yeah it's it's a, it's a doozy um this is a long one and uh we we knew it probably was going to be that way and um you know we're, we're really glad that we had josh and and sean on uh to help us with that
2: yeah thank you guys seriously that was, that's i'm super glad we got to do this with 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 you guys just because the fact that this whole show was born out of josh's decision to just binge watch david lynch's <laughs> filmography uh it's only fitting that we have have you guys uh on the on the episode
1: yeah this this podcast might well not exist if uh if josh had not decided to uh embark on a David Lynch journey and create a group DM about it. So mm. um, so we're, we're glad that, that we, we could have, have Josh on this one. Um, so yeah, just uh, as a means of wrapping up, Josh, why don't you uh, plug yourself a little bit, tell people where they can find you on the internet and uh, that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, um, thank you for that. That's very humbling um, because Twin Peaks is one of those, it's kind of, it's such a big cultural phenomenon in terms of you know, just a, a TV series. And especially this one, because I haven't watched every single TV series under the sun. Like I've not seen Breaking Bad and I've not seen Game of Thrones. I know a lot of people are going to shout at me for that. And I've not seen The Walking Dead and I don't care for any of those particularly. But the thing is, I have now seen Twin Peaks and as far as I'm concerned, that's where the fucking bar is in terms of TV standards. Um, so this is one that I knew I had to watch and one that I knew it's got such a big following that I had to set that message up because I just knew that I had to just talk to people about it. Um, And so, you know, when I put the call out for anyone who, who wanted to join in, you know, and got some, some great responses from, from the three of you guys, you know, and a a couple extra as well. So it was, it was just really good to be able to actually kind of have people to break it all down in a message format, which then turned into this. So I'm glad that, that that spawned this and I'm, yeah i'm super appreciative for you guys for inviting me on it's been an absolute pleasure um and in terms of finding me online uh you can only really find me on twitter um i'm on there at uh, morbid beard um yeah if you fancy coming and chat to me about twin peaks i i can't promise you i'll make any sense any of it but i will certainly happily talk to anyone about it that's for sure so yeah cheers guys
1: yeah yeah thanks thanks for coming on man and uh, unfortunately, Sean did have to sneak away from us, so I do I do want to give him a plug here. Sean is actually really uh, well known for for his Dark Souls and Bloodborne content. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at the Lore Hunter. He also does a blog called the Lore Hunter, where he does a deep dive into uh, the lore of the Souls games by From Software he also has a youtube channel where he he does the same yeah sup, super smart guy as you as you heard on here we're mm. very grateful to sean for for joining us and uh just for being a really cool guy in general as for me you can find me at strenuous orb on twitter and dylan you're at piff dylan
2: hell yeah
1: <laughs> as always we, we we do these plugs every week uh and the podcast twitter is 119 podcast we always want to hear from you drop us a line at 119 podcast at gmail.com if you have anything to say thanks for uh listening we we really appreciate it we're we're glad that the, the podcast is getting out there to people and yeah we we hope you guys will will continue to join us So, uh, yeah, for all of us, thanks a lot. Later.